Welcome to the podcast that's dedicated to making you a faster cyclist, the Ask a Cycling Coach podcast presented by Trainer Road. I'm Coach Jonathan Lee, and this is clearly a very different podcast than normal. Uh, so if you're looking at it right now, you'll probably see us Brady bunched around on the screen on YouTube. But if you're listening to this, we also may sound a bit different because we're not in our studio. Uh, we are actually all from home uh, due to the viral outbreak, but we still want to get you the podcast here. So uh, we have our head coach, Chad Timmerman. How are you doing? Hi, everybody. I'm, I'm doing well, thanks. Cool. We have our CEO, Nate Pearson. Hello. And because of the power of the internet and all of us being remote, we also have Amber Pierce. What's up, Amber? Hey, guys. This is uh, lemonade out of lemons, right? <laughs> yeah, mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah, yeah. It's a good thing that comes from it. Uh, so we are going to answer more of the cycling and triathlon related questions that you submit. You do so every week at trainerroad.com slash podcast. Keep doing that. It's awesome. And we sincerely appreciate it. It's really cool. And a couple things. You can also join us on YouTube. It's not live right now. We may find a way to make this live while we're remote. We may not. But regardless, you can watch this on YouTube. And if you are watching it on YouTube, you should absolutely go down there and give us a thumbs up on the video right now if you're watching because that will help us a bunch. You can subscribe to our YouTube channel so you don't miss the videos because we have a video every single day that's coming out, whether it's race analysis or some sort of tips. Tons of great content on there. Uh, so uh, you should do that if you're not doing it. And also, if you're listening on a podcast app, you can subscribe on the podcast app. So then that way you don't miss episodes because you know a lot of you just kind of jump in and find it. If you subscribe, it makes it a whole lot easier. So with all of that said, uh, Nate, we should probably just kind of like set the scene and explain yeah. things for folks, right? Well, one thing, we are remote. So uh, we're probably going to talk over each other a little bit and interrupt on accident. Um, so I know that kind of we know that bugs a lot of you, but we're going to do our best. Um, second thing is we understand this, like this is a really, really serious event. And I'm sure we're going to be uh, lighthearted in this episode, but we, we know that like, you know, people are dying and that sort of thing. Um, so I, I just want to let you know that we understand that. And that's why we shut down the office and everyone's working from home and we're doing this remote and quarantining. You see me in the office of Trader Road, but uh, it's shut down to everyone else. So it's kind of like a bigger house for me which is nice to get away from the kids because working at home with kids, as probably all of you are experiencing, is really, really hard. Um, the next thing I want to talk about is we're not giving any advice about the coronavirus um, because it is, I mean, one, we're not qualified to. I don't even want to like point to other videos. Today's March 19th, I think. Is that right? Um, things are moving so fast that information that we give to you and people listening to this podcast like many times in the future might be outdated. So the advice I'm going to give to you is look at the CDC, the World Health or World WHO, can't even say it, World Health Organization, and your local governments for information. Um, we'll still give you like, yeah, I think we're going to talk about some dry land swimming and well, you know, how to rebuild your plan and all this sort of thing, things that we are experts in that are evergreen. But other than that, um, I'm just, we're not going to answer those or point to any resources. Please just look them up yourself, uh, up to date and, and live. Hope everyone understands that. Yeah, I think that's the, probably the most responsible approach. We'll keep talking about how to adjust your training from where you're at and then, of course, how to get faster because we know that plenty of folks that are listening to this are still in a situation where they're able to train in some regard. Um, yep. So uh, we definitely want to help with that still. So uh, that's the whole kind of goal behind this. First things first, though, Nate, you were in Sydney and we yes. didn't really get to talk about that. But um, how did everything go in Sydney? I saw you did one race, right? Well, they just closed their borders too. So I'm glad I got out. Uh, but so I went down there and I did a uh, half run park crit and it was a disaster. The course is really, 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 really cool. 
I wish we had this course. It would be so interesting. John, this is your course. It's all about cornering, uh, short power. There was like a super, super heavy headwind, which was um, on the finishing straight, which was very unique for uh, this time of year or for that course. Usually it's crosswind there. But that allowed for like part of the course to have a huge tailwind where attacks could happen. So I, I raced A grade, which was the top grade. Two pro Conti guys went off, boom, right in the gun. I was like, oh, should I go? I wasn't feeling so well. Had some drinks the night before, but I stopped at like midnight thinking that 3 p.m. would be okay. It wasn't. Uh, we're going through, we're racing a small race, like 10 people. Uh, it was kind of bad weather. And I guess Tuesday night's the big night. This was a Saturday. We're going and uh, these guys are like, you know, working together to pull them back, but I'm not feeling good at all. And thinking if I pull, I'm going to pop myself off the back. I did like one or two week pulls, really not doing work. Um, I went in the rotation and then someone else like left a hole. So I would have to do two pulls like, you know, and right, rightly so he was like, well, you're not doing pulls. So mm -hmm. I'm going to give you an extra one. And I said, I can't do it. Uh, if you don't do it, like I'm not going to get back on. And he thought I was like messing with him. So we, I just <laughs> get in his wheel and we just both drop back and I'm like, dude, I'm not messing with you. <laughs> and, <we both. laughs> and then like half a lap later, I dropped out of the race. I was like so bad. I don't know if it's jet lag. Amber, do you, does jet lag affect you when you, uh, when you change time zones like that? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I'm laughing because I'm remembering one year we went down to race the tour of New Zealand and um, I was racing with Shelly Olds at the time and I was trying to get her. It was, it was bad. Like we were all just feeling terrible and it was just a really hilly race. And there's one point I was trying to bridge her up to the next group up the road <laughs> and it was like they were right there. I mean, we were within five meters of the back of the group and I was just dying. <laughs> I literally flipped, turned around her in the most pathetic, pitiful voice and was like, help me. <laughs> it was really bad. I feel you. It, it can really, really, really impact you big time. So on that race, I only survived 20 minutes, but I only did 300 normalized, which for me oh, is wow. not, not much, especially at sea level. So it's kind of like anticlimactic, kind of like the 40K where I didn't get to <laughs> like perform. Uh, and then the next day I did the TR group ride, which was amazing. Like everyone there was so cool. It was super fun for me to meet everyone. The, the road, it was raining and it was still like top three rides in my life. The roads were Nate. like, Nate yeah. does not like to ride in the rain. No, so. it was raining and cold. It stopped, but the roads were like perfectly smooth. Like I saw, we saw so many riders with, even though it was raining, the roads were still packed, at least for Reno. And they were like, if it was a clear day, it would be really, really packed. They were complaining about the roads and they're pointing stuff out, which would just be like regular roads in Reno, right? Like, because <laughs> they had like really nice roads and there'd be a little crack and they're like, watch out for the crack. But just, you know, in Northern California, it would be considered a good road where the crack is. Yeah. Uh, anyways, on that one, we did a climb where we did, went all out and I did 417 for eight minutes, like a day later. So my fitness definitely popped back up. Um, if I could do 417 for eight, uh, that means I could probably do way more than 30 or for 300 watts for 20 minutes. That was really frustrating because it doesn't matter. I don't know if you guys ever had that where you have the best fitness in your group rides rather than races. Um, that is very annoying. Then I was going to race on Tuesday night at, uh, at like this raceway thing. And I was all stoked for that. I was carb loading. And then I had diarrhea. So, oh, no. um, oh, and it's, I don't think it's from the carb loading. It's the other guy, the other guy, apart real fast. <laughs> one of, and I had really like really, really, really tired. Um, part of that might've been the jet lag, but the guy that I was with, he wasn't carb loading, but we had some of the, we had all the same restaurants. He also had diarrhea. Um, and then, so 
we did that. And then the event that I got there for, when, I, when we landed, I was checking in the hotel and it got canceled because of COVID-19. So that was a uh, business event that you were there for. Yeah, right? yeah it was a local one. The, the local people put on some learning stuff and I, I did get some cool stuff out of that. But uh, basically the week was kind of a bust. Went to go race again or uh, to ride again, but it was like, felt like 40 degrees and raining. And we decided just to have breakfast <laughs> instead of riding. Um, I didn't have a bike pump. I didn't have I had a backpack on nowhere to put it. It was pretty bad. Uh, yeah. And then I got sick two days after I came back. Um, better now, but who knows what I have. You can't, you can't get tested here in Reno unless you have 101.4 temperature and I don't have it. So might as well treat myself like I am, you know, it's probably just a cold, but like I have it. And then that allows other people to have tests. And so far I'm fine. That's a good segue, Nate. Um, we should talk about a blog post that was just recently published on our blog that's helpful for this sort of scenario that almost everybody listening to this probably finds themselves in, which is really like what happens once your races have been canceled. So there's a blog post called How to Adjust for Canceled Events. And if you go to blog.trainerroad.com, you can see it up there. Um, or if you just search for Trainer Road blog, that's probably the best spot to find it there too. So, um, so with that said, it talks about how to adjust your training how with rescheduled events or if it's in the near term or in the long term, or if you just have canceled events, how to manage that. And then also a plan builder. So, but I wanted to go through a couple of those scenarios really quick. So like first things first, I think most of us here have had our events canceled. I mean, Amber, you're, you're enjoying the fruits of retirement right now. So yeah. <laughs> but you still had a lot of events that you were probably not training for necessarily, but you still had a lot of them that were canceled. Yeah. Big um, time. So in, in the blog post that we have up there, when we talk about the canceled events and how to adjust for that um, and what to do, really it, it comes down to, there's kind of the, the, the actual mechanics of it, how to move things around on your training plan. There's the motivation aspect of things. And then there's also the opportunity that you have that kind of ties in with both of them to kind of flip things on their head and change things up. So I think first things first, if you're using Plan Builder and then you delete an event off your calendar, Plan Builder, it'll actually ask you, do you want to recalculate your plan? And it'll recalculate it for you, which is really cool. If you have to batch delete a bunch of uh, races off of your calendar, uh, you don't have to recalculate every time. You can delete, 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 and then you'll get that notification if you want to recalculate each time. And then you can just recalculate on the last one, for example, and then it'll build it all out for you. Um, but if, and then if you, I think the big question a lot of people have though is what if I don't have an event, right? Because there just isn't one on the calendar. And I, I, I'm curious to see what your guys' opinions are on this, but like one of the things that I would have done or mm -hmm. that I am doing, I should say, because I don't think national championships will happen and you know, late or very early July, we'll see. And if those, assuming those don't happen, I'm personally deciding to still peak around that period of time. I'm okay with it. If they're, you know, if racing gets back into the swing of things a month or two later, that's okay. I think that I'll actually experience quite a lot of benefit from going all the way through the process of going up to a peak and then dropping down, especially because chances are, you know, I don't think that things would be rescheduled on that level, you know, uh, later on in the year. It would be mm -hmm. really tough just how busy the calendar will be. And I'm, I'm taking roughly the same approach because Masters Nationals isn't until the very end of July, but I'm still training. Um, I'm getting over a bit of illness as well, so I'm trying to get back on track, but I am still training as though it's going to take place. I mean, you have to be prepared for it. It's, it's not something that's been taken off the calendar yet. It may stay exactly where it is, and if I haven't done my, my, my work and time for it, then that's on me. 
I was uh, peaking for Tour of America's Dairyland, which I'm pretty sure is not going to happen. That was in early June. So what I'm doing is I'm, re, I'm just going to delete my plan, start over, and uh, peak for nationals. I don't think that's going to happen. But like you said, uh, I should know like a month ahead of time. And I can decide then based on motivation, do I want to go through specialty or do I want to start over again? Because sometimes uh, specialty is like super fun. And uh, sometimes I might think of, oh, this is going to be over by... I don't know, October and try to, I speak for Kona well, for that, right there. See, that's a good approach too, because if you bring your fitness up to, you know, what's effectively 90% of where you can get, and we find out four weeks in advance that the event is still scheduled, taking place as scheduled, four weeks is enough, to, enough time to drum up that last 10%. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One thing with this too is if your event has been canceled, I guess a different approach that you can take too is like, let's say you are a crit racer but you are a really good long bomb style crit racer, right? Like, so the sort of athlete that like breakaways work really well, but short repeatable efforts are always the ones that end up putting you on the back foot. It, this is a good opportunity for you to kind of become the athlete that you've always wanted to be, so to speak. And you can kind of spend some time, like basically right now, if I was in that situation, what I would do is I would change things up and just put a fictional race on my calendar. That's a criterium and put it within, you know, eight weeks or so where I'm at, and I would double down on that criterium specialty phase, right? Um, Or you can do something in the opposite. If you really want to be a steady state athlete, then you can build towards something like that. It's kind of a fun time to, uh, because there's no event pressure on your calendar, you can really just train as you wish, which is pretty cool. Um, But the one thing I would say is having structure to adhere to, you know, especially when we're talking about like quarantining and everything else, having that structure is going to be really helpful. But then also, you know, this is a great opportunity for a lot of people to be able to be possibly more focused than they have been with their training as well. Just less interruptions, probably less contact with people. I know, Nate, you mentioned kids earlier with our kids. Like now that my son isn't going to school right now, I'm, prob- I'm thinking like, this is amazing. I'm never going to get sick again. Probably won't be the case. But, <laughs> but it's, it's probably an opportunity to get in really focused, structured training. I think people coming out of this, there's going to be two groups. One group that like, you know, the TR people who are like, wow, I'm going to, I have no travel. I'm not going to get sick because I'm not in touch with everyone. And they're just going to execute on their workout and they're not going out to eat and they can like choose their food and they're eating like this whole foods and stuff. And the other group who's kind of super stressed out, they're not training, they're eating poorly, you know, like pizza rolls or something like that because they're stressed out. Cause it's right. When you get stressed, you eat yeah. a lot. It's a lot easier to eat more poorly. Um, they're going to come out of this with a little change in body composition and not be as fast. So I would say our listeners, unless you race in Northern California, you should be that first group, uh, 30 to they're 35 plus. Your second description there was, was describing my retired life. Let's, let's, you know, dial it yeah. back a notch. Would you? <laughs> Amber, it's okay. You've already put in the KJs. All of us who are still trying to like go up, you can do, you can uh, live the civilian life. Yeah. Well, I I think there's a lot to be said just for maintaining that structure and routine right now, especially now it can just be so grounding mentally and emotionally just to have some structure to, to, that you can just rely on right now. Yeah. I I was Um, even thinking about on my calendar, like, I mean, if you really want to be crazy, if you're a cyclist, no one has to know about it right now. You could put Kona on your calendar or something like that. And you can train like a triathlete for a while. Like this is your time to be able to do these sort of things. It's really kind of like a a free license that you can, like the necessity is structure, but you can pick whatever that needs to be. John, uh, 
I just have to address the elephant in the room. Everyone wants you to get that guitar down and shred. Like, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I want to hear you, you play Wonderwall. <laughs> exactly. I think that may be one of the only songs I can play. That thing's yeah, practically. I, I, I knew it. I didn't even know that you could play it, but I knew it. Yeah, that thing's practically aesthetic at this point. Uh, Simon, my my three year old son, plays it, which basically means he smashes it all the time. So, um, one other thing that I want to, which I guess once more hitting on this since we are live from home or wherever we are you're probably going to hear kids or dogs you might even see us like pointing to each other on the screen trying to make the like the dialogue more clear all this stuff so getting like behind the scenes raw look at how this is all going so uh one question amber and i'm so excited we have you on here because before you were a cyclist you were a very like high level swimmer um a bunch of people triathletes are asking <laughs> my pool is closed I don't have a spot to swim. What should I do to keep up my swim training while Amber, we're going through this whole process? Amber, too, say your swim background so everyone knows. Uh, yeah, so I, I swam for Stanford um, back in the day. So I was a scholarship athlete there on the D1 program. And Stanford's like one of the best in the nation, right? Yeah, yeah. It's one and, of the top level NC2A programs. Didn't you win a bunch of state championships, too? <laughs> yeah, I um I did. I won state championships, national championships, set state and national records, um, and then went to Stanford on scholarship for swimming. This is why I have to pull this out of her, right? She's like, yeah, I used to swim, and I got a national championship in high school, just so you know, uh, and yeah. paid for Stanford, one of the best schools in the country at swimming and academics, and they gave me a full ride. Uh, cool, yeah. pretty <laughs> impressive, man. Uh, so Amber, but listen to her. <laughs> yeah, seriously, she knows what she's doing. Amber, what should we do in this case if you I mean, can't swim in water? How did you, or how would you suggest that people keep up on this? Yeah, I think the the, the number one thing is don't stress too hard about this. Um, this is, you know, whether or not you can swim is not going to be the most important thing right now. Uh, but there are some things that you can do to kind of mitigate some of that specific swimming fitness loss. Um, you know, most of us are you know, especially with the training program, and especially if you're a triathlete and you're trying to train three different sports, um, you're trying to use your time effectively, right? So you're trying to use, you're trying to devote all of your training time to really sport specific work and not being able to do that right now with swimming is a tough thing. Uh, but there are some things that you can do to mitigate that. So first thing is, you know, don't panic. There's a lot you can do. Um, and I think the two core things as far as fitness goes are to focus on maintaining strength in key muscle groups. So with swimming, that would be like core, lats, triceps, hip flexors, quads, um, with big, big emphasis on core. And then the second thing you can do is to maintain just a general aerobic conditioning with cross training. Um, when I was at Stanford, we did a ton of dry land work. Uh, I hated dryland. We did so much dryland work. <laughs> but one of the things that we did during dryland was we actually did spinning classes. We had spin bikes next to the pool and we would lead spin sessions um, in the morning before morning practice. So there's a lot to be said for conditioning with cross training. So don't stress too much about that stuff. I think there's a lot that you can do to sort of stave off swim specific uh, loss. Um, this is kind of a fun extra. I went back through my notes from when I was swimming at Stanford and I, I have them here. Um, we've scanned them. And so producer Tucker is going to have those available to you guys. They're super, super geeky, but um, <laughs> it's really fun. And I, I do want to just take a second and talk about some of this because I think it's an interesting way of thinking about swimming. And this ties into some of the things that you can do on dry land 
um, even just in your living room to work on your swimming. So there's three main things that you can do right now, especially with dry land work. Uh, one is to work on your mobility. And I really, really like Kelly Starrett's approach to mobility. It's not just about range of motion. It's not just about, can you, you know, put your shoulder into this position or not? It's about, can you access that position with strength and control? So if you are weak or vulnerable in the end range of your range of motion, that end range isn't useful to you at all. And as a swimmer, you know, you really want to have good shoulder mobility, which means you want to be able to access some, as many positions with your shoulders and arms as you can, but actually have strength and control in those. Chad, you've done a lot of stuff with the Kelly Starrett style training. Is there anything you want to add here? Uh, not at this point. I think your points are super salient. And I, I do like that he <clears throat> pushes the point that it's not just about being able to maintain the, the range of motion so much as be strong. I mean, actually have usable strength through that entire range. Yeah. Yeah. When I was in, in high school, I used to do like crazy shoulder stretches and I would do a lot of passive stretches. And it wasn't until I got to college and was really revamping my swim technique. Um, that I realized that, you know, it was great that I had these hypermobile shoulders, but it ended up being problematic to the point where I had to get shoulder surgery because uh, my right shoulder was actually so hypermobile that the head of the humerus bone in the shoulder capsule was unstable. And so it was sort of like rattling around in there in a way that was causing a lot of problems. <laughs> so um, cautionary tale there. But yeah. the, the point is that you can do a lot uh, right now at home, just working on shoulder mobility, scapular mobility. Um, you can. YouTube, a lot of this, just do a YouTube search on those things. Um, but mobility is a really good one. And again, it's not just about stretching and getting into weird range of motion positions. It's about can you, you know, learning how to strengthen those positions, learning how to access those with a lot of control. The second thing that you can do, big picture, is work on stability. And this is really related to the mobility, right? Can you access those positions and be stable in those positions, have strength and control? To, to achieve that stability. Um, so that's another one that is really specific to swimming. Um, one of the things that we used to work on with dryland all the time was posture. And I think this is a really interesting one. It's really key for swimming and not something that anybody, I don't know how much this gets emphasized anymore these days. And to be fair, everything that I'm saying is a little bit dated. Um, but I think that it's really relevant. Uh, so one of the things in my notes, you'll see a little sketch of a rubber raft and a kayak. Um, one of the things that happens to us when we get in the water is our, we did not evolve to hang out in the water. <laughs> we evolved in, on dry land in gravity, right? So our bodies are evolved to respond to and to gravity, to moving in gravity. So when you look at the curvature of the spine, it's, it looks a lot like a spring because it's designed to absorb the impact as we walk. It's, you know, absorbing this vertical impact as a spring. Um, and that's a really great design for when you're walking up great, upright in gravity. When you're in the water, it's a totally different environment. You don't need that spring to absorb anything. Um, the other thing that happens when you get in the water is because it's a foreign environment, your brain kind of goes haywire. You can't eat, you can't breathe naturally the way that you normally do. Um, you feel very, very unstable. You don't have the orienting sensation of gravity. You don't have ground under your feet. So this, the combination of unfamiliarity and um, instability and effect on breathing kind of forces 
causes your limbic system, that more primitive part of your brain, to freak out, <laughs> to put it in really scientific terms. Um, I feel that. I feel that every time I get in the water. <laughs> right. And this is one of the biggest things. I, I Honestly, it's this huge. And, and you know, even if you're mildly uncomfortable in the water, even if it's not something that you're, you're so panicked you can't swim, like even if you're mildly uncomfortable in the water or you feel, you don't feel at ease breathing when you're swimming, um, those are things that are going to make it more difficult for you to actually focus on technique in the water. And technique in the water is hugely, hugely important as we know. So getting back to kayak and rubber raft, um, one of the things that our brain does when we get in the water to counteract this, counteract this freak out is to seek stability. That's the first thing your brain is going to do. It's going to seek stability, stability in air. And so when you're in the water, seeking stability looks like becoming a rubber raft. Um, and that is you basically want to flatten out and spread out, right? And become this rubber raft. But if you compare a rubber raft to a kayak, we know that a kayak is significantly faster than a rubber raft, but it's also significantly less stable. So our natural instinct to achieve stability because we're not comfortable with that instability in the water actually makes us slower. If you can get comfortable with the instability of the water and become a kayak, you can be a lot faster. Um, I had the great honor of working with two brilliant minds in swimming, uh, Milt Nelms and Bill Boomer, who were at, I think this stuff was still relatively new at the time I was getting to work with them, but um, they were looking at swimming in a really different way. And they were looking at it not about horse production, you know, and strength and all of these things. They were looking at it like, what's actually happening? What's actually happening when the body gets in the water and interacts in this totally foreign environment. And they were looking at it not just in terms of physiology, but they were also looking at it in terms of physics. What are the physics and um, interactions between the body and the water? Uh, what is your internal state? So that limbic system response. Um, and then, you know, also what is your shape in the water? And so one of the things Bill Boomer used to say was first you create the shape. And then that, that's the first step in swimming is to create the shape. It's less about um, the strength, but you want to learn how to create the right shape. And so you don't want to be the rubber raft. You want to be the kayak. And becoming a kayak means totally changing your body configuration in the, for the water in a way that's very different from being on land. So going back to your spine as a spring on land, when you're in the water, you want your spine to be a kayak. You don't need to have those spring-like curves in your spine, you want your, your spine to actually be quite a bit straighter, more like an arrow in a kayak than you would on land, as an example. So one of the things we used to do is we used to practice what we called the aquatic posture um, in dry land. And it's something that's, it's a lot about body awareness. Um, it's really subtle stuff. So a really basic way of feeling this is if you lay on the ground and you just lay on your back normally, for most of us, the small of your back is going to be, there'll be a little bit of a space between the ground and the small of your back. And that's part of that spring-like curvature of the spine that, again, it's designed for absorbing impact and gravity. But when you're, say, in a freestyle position, you want to be that kayak. Um, and that doesn't involve flattening out. That involves being really, really straight. So as you lie on your back, tilting your pelvis forward really gently, 
with as little effort as you possibly can to just feel the small of your back touching the ground, imprinting the ground, not with a ton of pressure, just enough to feel that that space goes away. Now your back is a little bit straighter and then you want to sort of lengthen your neck a little bit. So just feel like from the very top of your head, there's a string pulling your head straight up. And now your spine is a lot straighter than it would be just walking around normally. And you want to just feel that sensation. What does it take? You pull your rib cage down a little bit toward your belly button. You're pulling your pelvis up a little bit. And just what are the sensations there? And you can use gravity and being on land uh, to kind of strengthen that proprioceptive feedback to feel the difference between having that curvy spring-like spine and having that really kind of rigid, straight kayak spine that you would want in swimming. And then once you kind of get a hang of that on your back, you can try it on your side and work your obliques a little bit and feel how well your core can balance in that straighter configuration. And then we would actually stand up on two feet, just on the deck, and you would stand there and you would try to pull your pelvis forward, pull your rib cage down a little bit, get your spine nice and nice and straight. And you would try to hold that. And again, going back to this idea that your limbic system kind of freaks out in the water, um, one of the things we used to do is what they called chaos training. <laughs> it sounds funny, but I kind of feel like that's what we're all doing right now anyway. Yeah, that's, that's, that's called swimming for me. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, it's like when, you, when we're training, I mean, and this applies for everything, right? Like when we're training, you're doing intervals. There's a lot of structure. We sort of know what to expect. We establish predictable patterns, and these are all good things. But then on race day, anything can, anything can go wrong. Your nerves are heightened. There's a lot more. There are just so many more elements involved that we're not used to having to manage in training. And so um, training, quote unquote, that chaos can be really, really helpful, right? It, it trains your limbic system to be a little bit more comfortable with unpredictability and instability. So we would stand on the deck, have your aquatic posture, nice and firm. <laughs> and then we would try to push each other over. So as I would stand there with my posture, my teammates would push me forward, back, side to side, and in ways that were not predictable. So it wasn't like they're just going to keep pushing me from the right side and I would fight against it. They would just push me all different directions. And I would try to maintain that posture and stay stable without falling over, without using my arms, without using my legs but only using my core. And then we would translate that to the water by getting in and doing what we called pencil floats, where you would just float vertically in the water. You would put your spine into aquatic posture and you would just float like a pencil with your arms at your sides as long as you could. And inevitably, like within seconds, you become really, really unstable and you start to kind of tilt one way or the other. And the goal is to fight that tilt and fight the instability with only your core. This is surprisingly difficult to do. But again, it's really, really subtle. Um, and I think the part of, you know, the, the subtlety in swimming, if you think about it, like when we're on the bike, you're pushing against a platform, which is a pedal, and you're generating huge watts, right? Uh, but in some the pool. Us, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> some some oh, more on, than others. <laughs> it's all relative. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we, could, we can all be heroes in our own minds. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but in swimming, you don't have to generate that much force. In fact, you can't. Like the more force you try to generate because you're moving through a fluid, it's not necessarily going to be productive. One of the things Bill, Boom, Bill Boomer and Milton Elms uh, really got across, which I thought was brilliant, was 
when you're swimming, you're going, you basically have an impulse and a space, and then you have the next impulse. So you have these spaces between impulses. And one of the uh, better analogies I remember Bill using was think of it as like cross country skiing. So you have an impulse pushing off one ski and then the space is the glide. And then you have an impulse pushing off the next ski and then you have the space as the glide. Um, in the pool, you have an impulse, which is you're anchoring in freestyle, we'll say you're anchoring one hand in the water while you're swinging the other arm over the top. And then you have that the space is the space between the impulse of the anchor and then the glide forward. So with swimming, it's less about, you don't have a platform where you're just, you know, creating tons of pressure or uh, tons of force. It's, it's only a couple pounds of force that you need to generate the impulse. What makes a swimmer faster is how well they utilize the space between the impulses. So what shape are you in? When you're gliding, are you a rubber raft or are you a kayak? The more like a kayak you are, the more distance you're going to get in that glide. And in swimming, we like to refer to that as your distance per stroke. But if you imagine this, the impulse is never going to be like, you're never going to get to like a 600 watt impulse. <laughs> it's just, even if you could, it's not necessarily going to help you. What's going to help you is creating the right shapes and making the most of the space between the impulses. The other interesting thing about swimming is the impulse always comes from your core. You might think that it's coming from your lat, but it's really you're steering with your hips and your core. So in freestyle and backstroke, you can think of it, these are the long axis strokes. So the, the impulse is you're flipping from side to side with your hips. If you imagine the kayak, if you're in freestyle, you want to mostly be on your side. You almost never want to be on your stomach. Um, and you're driving that rotation from your hips, not from your shoulders, not from your arms. So the impulse to throw your arm over the top of the water is coming from your core. The impulse to anchor the other hand under the water as you're doing that is coming from your core. These are all things that you can train out of the water, which is the cool thing. So you can work on this aquatic posture. You can work on impulse training. You can work on chaos, chaos training. You can work on, and the more you work on just simple postural exercises like this, the more you'll have a proprioceptive body awareness that will translate to the water so that when you do get back in the water and start working on technique, you'll have a better body awareness and you'll be better able to start making some of these changes. This is interesting because I feel like if you think about it with cycling, a lot of the times it's hard to break down everything that your body is doing and should be doing when you are in the midst of pedaling, right? Like it's yeah. tough to do it. So that's why we do cross training. That's why we do plenty of other things. That's why we do pedal stroke drills, that sort of stuff when the, you know, that, that environment is more controlled for, you know, slower, lower power or, you know, just less complexity in the workouts earlier in the season. Those sort of fundamentals are huge. We just went deep on swimming. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty cool. It makes me what wanna, about? <laughs> I, I, it makes me want to swim. Uh, firstly, uh, I can't wait to do that. And also Amber's going to be my coach. Yeah. And I'm going to pay her so that she can't coach you too, um, which will be nice. <laughs> I, I'm going to, I actually do pay her already. I know. So. <laughs> Dang it. Uh, Amber, what about like, uh, just like, uh, body weight exercises, pull-ups. Do you guys do any of those? Oh yeah. Uh, those two. So um, what did you do? Jeez. Oh, okay. So we would do tons of medicine ball stuff. Uh, we did 
lots of rope climb stuff. We did a lot of VASA trainer stuff. But interestingly, on the VASA trainer, what we used the VASA trainer for was to train the impulse. So we weren't necessarily, you know, using it as an erg per se. It was more about um, doing kind of isometric contractions where you were trying to generate force through the arm that was originating in the core. Um, And then we would do your standard pull-ups too, which is... (laughs) super fun. <laughs> a, a VASA trainer, for those that don't know, is basically like a, it's a, it's a hybrid rowing machine that's made to simulate swimming, lay on your stomach, have these things that attach to your hands. If you're watching on YouTube, you can see, and then it, you can't really emulate the swimming stroke because your torso can't rotate. So it would probably be really bad on your shoulders if you tried to do that. Right. But it, it, the, the intent Amber, right, is, and like you said, you're using it for a specific purpose, but the intent is to work on a lot of the muscles when we're talking about that pulling back that, that you right. do with a swim stroke, right? Yeah, you can use it to, to just really shred your lats, honestly, <laughs> which yeah. you can do at home with, you know, any kind of, um, like if you have TRX, if you have uh, just like like rubber bands that you can tie, you know, um, why, am I, why is that term escaping me right now? I don't know. But there's a lot you can do, again, to, to train these specific muscle groups. So um, your deltoids and your lats, you know, all of those kind of stabilize your shoulder muscles. So everybody who swims tends to, uh, overlook doing basic shoulder external and internal rotation work. Cause it's really boring and not very much fun, but it's really, really good for you and keeps your, your shoulders really healthy. Um, so there's a lot you can do there. Chad and Amber, here's my, here's what am I thinking for at home dry land swim training? <laughs> Uh, on a budget, you could get the bands off Amazon. Those are really cheap, like $8 mm-hmm. and do some of the rotation stuff that you talked about. You could do the postural stuff that you talked about, which is free. Do core work, which I think you can just do with yourself and feed under a couch or something. And then the final one is you could get one of those doorway uh, pull-up things. Those are like, they're pretty cheap. I think like $20, mm-hmm. but without having to buy a whole gym, you could get those and just work on your pull-ups, um, both pull-ups and chin-ups, I would think. Um, because why not? You probably have extra upper body work to, you know, extra, uh, I'm not going to say recovery time, but you could put more stress in your upper body because that's all you have. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that? You too. Yeah, even, even something uh, like hanging rows. So if you want, rather than an overhead pull, if you want to do more of a horizontal pull, you can just take a, a wooden dowel in between two chairs. It's, it's pretty basic, but it does the job quite well. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. A, you can you make yourself really really sore doing body weight stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. There's strap systems that you can get for really cheap now too, uh, whether it's Amazon or anything else like that. So if you don't have something where you can mount like you know up on like a door where you can mount um, some sort of chin up bar, you can use those strap systems and they can usually hook up to any door that you have. And like you said, Chad, you can kind of do inclining rows or whatever else you need to. Mm-hmm. That, it's pretty flexible. There's system. a lot of, and they're all cropping up now, of course, on YouTube, but there's a lot of DIY sort of fixes for bodyweight exercises and slightly enhanced bodyweight exercises. Yeah. yeah. Supermans are another really good one too, just for rear chain and scapular right. mobilization. That's like the, the exercise you're talking about when you just lay on the ground and then from your position prone on the ground, extend your arms and your yeah. legs out and lift them slightly off the ground. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So you're on your stomach um, and then you can do, I call them, uh, was it I's, T's, and Y's? So you make the shape of an eye with your hands up by your ears and try to lift those. And again, it's just a 
subtle impulse, uh, but just lifting for 10, 15, 20 repeats until you feel a good burn and then make the shape of a Y. So then your arms are a little bit out wider and then you do a T where they're out at 90 degrees from your body. Um, yeah, and those are, those are really good. The IYTs are good. And then when you're in that Superman position, you can actually, it's called swimming where you alternate left leg, right leg raise, and then alternate mm -hmm. back and forth, which is a bit of a contralateral movement, which is, you know, similar to swimming. Yeah. Are we talking like a big uh, left, right leg movement, Chad, or are these subtle? No, it doesn't have to be. All you're trying to do is activate, you know, muscles on the posterior chain, really. And they, they don't have a big range of motion. Mm -hmm. mm. These, uh, do you think these would be bad for cyclists? No. Like, Not at all. Right? No, yeah. I think they address specific places that cyclists neglect or the cycling posture neglects. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> cycling posture is a funny word, period. <laughs> <laughs> I got it right here. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's just a, a really nice way of saying terrible posture. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's kind of funny. Like whenever I see them talking about like phone posture and how bad phone posture is for everybody, I'm like, he looks super arrow. Like, it's yeah. like <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's a different way to look at it. Um, this is awesome. Is there anything else that we want to discuss on the swimming side of things? Um, Amber, Chad, Nate, anybody? Well, I saw Amber touched on open water swims. So yeah, I mean, I mean if you have access, um, yeah, that might. Be, I mean, you could still social be social distancing and swimming across a lake. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, pretty cool yeah. stuff. Yeah, uh, I think I just want to just touch back, circle back on the you know, don't freak out right now. I mean it's, it's really tough to get thrown out of your training routine and it can really feel like a setback, but, um, this is an opportunity, you know, maybe even an opportunity to just slow down and do a little bit less. Um, and I'm not saying, you know, get lazy, but so, it, it can actually really help your training to take some time to de-stress, um, which is a little bit hard to do right now. I probably, you know, probably for most of us, it's a very stressful time. Um, but sometimes doing less can actually be more. And, you know, if you think about professional athletes, uh, we get to do the specific training. So if all you're doing is training, you can go out and do a five hour bike ride and then come home and do all of the supplemental work on range of motion, range, excuse me, range of motion, stability. Um, that's a real luxury as an athlete who's training full time. Uh, most of the folks listening to this don't have that luxury. But right now, if you're not able to go to this, the pool and do that specific training, this is a time that you can explore this stuff um, and just, you know, get into it and see what you can learn, see what you can learn about your body, um, see how well you can train better body awareness uh, with this time. So I don't know, it's, it's, you don't usually have time to do stuff like this. So this might be a fun time to get into it and just see how it affects you. I feel like there's uh, two camps here. One where this is like a very stressful situation at home with the kids all day, like push and pull. And that, Amber, I think if you're regularly doing 90-minute workouts, maybe this is the time to start doing hour workouts or 45-minute yeah. workouts to be consistent yeah. and a little bit less. Then there's the other group. Maybe you don't have kids. You're like, 90 minutes of my commute is taken off. Like, I get to eat at home and this isn't really a huge deal. I have all this extra energy. Mm -hmm. And maybe for them you could do that supplemental or maybe try a little bit more volume, like play with it, right? Like don't, it's yeah. easy to overdo it. You don't want to overdo it for sure. But uh, it's definitely, I think it's like, I think it's polarized. You're either like stressed out or like I'm, I'm, I have so much energy and I need to do stuff and <laughs> yeah. uh, I have so much extra time. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Well, if you do have extra time, there's a lot more in my notes that you can take a look at. I think Tucker's going to be posting those. So, um, What episode is this, Jonathan, in the forum? Episode, episode 251. So you can go to trainerroad.com slash forum and you can check it out there. Um, or just search for the forum or train road forum. You can yeah. find it. One pro tip on the forum, by the way, at least on my phone and on my iPad, I actually, you can save it and it looks like an app on my screen. It's a pretty sweet thing to have because I just have it right there all the time. So then I can mm -hmm. tap in and check it Ooh. out. Another mm -hmm. pro tip is the forum has a dark mode. I think we should make this default. But if you yeah. click into your preferences, there's a check mark for dark mode. And like using it at night, it's a lifesaver. Yes. Light. Lifesaver. <laughs> My son always says lightsaber for that. Yeah. When I start to say it like. <laughs> We're having a lot of time with our kids right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's get into Lee's question. He says, hey guys, I love who you are and what you do. Mega props. Thanks, Lee. Appreciate it. I think we all know who this Lee is, by the way. He says, here's my crazy question. I have a sense that I should be doing intervals of various intensities and lengths. For me as a general purpose, but gravity-ish mountain biker, I think the intervals might look like five seconds all out, 30 seconds, one minute, and three to five minutes. But what if I did one interval to rule them all? I like that. <laughs> it says, start at full power, fade to 30 second power, hang on for 60 second power, and just suffer for the rest of the three to five minutes. My wattage would start as high as I can make it. Then it would fade until the interval is over. While I guess I'll lose some specificity, it seems like I could be really efficient this way, this way and it would make me tough like Jonathan, he says. <laughs> this, is Lee, this is Lee McCormick, by the way, from Lee Likes Bikes, writing this in, I think. So, um, hi, Lee, first of all. And we've done two podcast episodes with Lee and a full video on our YouTube channel. So you can go to youtube.com slash trainerroad. Um, he is for me personally, the best mountain bike instructor I've worked with. He's incredible. So, uh, he knows what he's doing on this stuff and it's cool. That he's asking us on the training side. Yep. He made me a lot better, which is like pretty big challenge. In a day. <laughs> yeah. And you've worked with him, you've worked with him oh, twice seriously. now, right? Nate. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, and, and we've said this before, but like Nate is like an, like I rode behind Nate and I was actually pushing it pretty hard, like hard, hard. Enough so that I was very uncomfortable being this close to behind somebody. It's like that sort of speed, and Nate was ripping. So uh, well, next yeah. time I'll try to push it and see if you can keep up. I'm, I'll probably get dropped. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I know right? that would be if I dropped you ever in my life. Uh, whew, I would just I'm just just done. Retired from mountain biking. Yeah, descent or or <laughs> doesn't climb doesn't get better than that. Yeah, descent or climb. Yeah, I, I'm. Geez, you're pretty fit this year. So, getting into Lee's question, though, he says, "What kind of crazy am I talking?" So, he, his main question, really, kind of, this is how a lot of people ride their bikes, especially, you know, I when I first started out, I was like, "What's this Strava thing?" Oh my gosh! And like, insert meme picture of my head exploding, right? Like, I was like, <laughs> "This is amazing." So, I just kept riding as hard as I could to try to chase a segment, and I would just burn out, and then I would do it again and again, and it's, it, it like gave me a necessary spike in the beginning to start to become somewhat not slow, but it wasn't any sort of long-term strategy where I could like actually progress to a certain point. But Chad, a lot of people do this and in our minds, it kind of makes sense. It's like, well, you know, we're pushing ourselves all the way to our max yeah. and then we do it again. Why doesn't it work? You actually summed it up really well right there saying it's not a long-term strategy. So uh, actually, before I get to my reply to this, I do want to touch on two things that Lee said. And if it is Lee, hey Lee, super cool mm -hmm. that you're sending us a question. Um, well, I guess I'll lose some specificity. Quite contrary, what you're describing right here is about as specific as it gets. You, you've determined exactly what your event requires and you're addressing exactly those demands. 
So, but that does make sense in, in certain contexts. We'll get to that. And then you said that it seems like I could be really efficient this way. Time efficient, yes. In terms of training the necessary energy systems, not so much. And I'm going to talk about that right now. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, uh, developing multiple energy systems in, in a single phase of training is already a pretty big ask. And then trying to do all of that in the same workout is a really big ask. So if you look at traditional periodization, which is basically, basically the way we approach it at trainer road, we use the base build and specialty, uh, phases of training. And they address this by, by whittling down the focus gradually. So for instance, you start in the base phase and it's, it's the most general type of training, training that's going to benefit pretty much every type of rider. Move on to the build phase and things get increasingly more specific depending on the, the demands of the particular events that you're pursuing, that you're working toward. And then we'll get into that specialty phase. That's when it gets the most specific. And it's in this specialty phase that you'll see workouts just like you're describing, Lee. Um, this actually sounds a lot like, and, and not exactly the same, but a lot like a race winner where you go out with a hard surge, you maintain, and then you finish. With, with a bit of a hard surge, repeat ad nauseum. And then, and then in conjunction, maybe with, depending on the plan, the specialty plan, you're, you're in the midst of, there are combination workouts that will actually take those race winners and, and lump them together with something like microbursts. And the idea there was that you're, you're trying numerous times to get away and then you get away and you're in a small group and the small group starts attacking itself, that sort of thing. Just scenarios that might apply to each of these specialties. Um, but it does get that specific at some point. And then it's worth mentioning too, that if there isn't a workout that is as specific as you'd like it to be, our workout creator is a great way to get hyper specific with what you want to do. Again, I would recommend saving this into the special, until the specialty phase, but that workout creator is a, a very handy tool when it comes to this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so the, the issue really is across phases and within the same workout is something I refer to as stimulus dilution. So the, the more adapted you become to different types of training, the greater the stimulus that's required for further adaptation. You can't just continue doing the same thing and expect your body to keep responding positively. You have to keep upping the demand. So again, if we go back to base, it's pretty general because we're effectively starting with a clean slate. I mean, you probably are bringing some fitness into it, but we're taking this, you know, this moldable ball of clay and, 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 and starting to form it. Then you move into the build and it shifts more of the emphasis onto those energy systems that are going to be relied upon depending on, again, what you're doing, whether you're a time trialist or a criterium and even a criterium rider. And even within that, are you more of a sprinter than the breakaway artist, et cetera. So it gets just a little more specific. And then specialty, by the time you get there, it's assumed that the necessary capabilities are all in place. They might be a bit unrefined, but that's what specialty is for. It's to refine them, to touch them up, and then to start to blend them in ways that are practical and usable in whatever event it is. So in, in Lee's case, so the question you're saying, if this is all you did, you'd really have to do more and more and more of it. So one week, maybe you have two or three of these workouts with five repeats, then the next week it'd have to be two or three with six repeats or you know, six, five, six. And then the next week, seven, seven, seven. The, the point is you can't keep escalating that and keep chasing the adaptation because at some point you're going to come up against the ceiling. Yeah. And, and especially when we're talking about something that cascades from an all out instant effort as hard as you possibly can all the way down to five minutes, yep. that's, you know, you're using a pretty broad range of energy system stress that you're enacting right there. So like you said, bumping up against those limits, since you aren't addressing any one of those in particular, 
those limits will get hit pretty quick and yeah. they'll stand hard in your way. And that in and of itself is a perfect illustration of what I mean by um, stimulus dilution is, is you're going to hit it super hard coming out of the gates. And then what are you going to have to draw upon as you're trying to touch up or, you know, hit those other energy systems? It's, it's going to be a diluted impact or a diluted stimulus and therefore a diluted adaptation. Yeah, I mean, if you even look at something, I know a three-minute interval may not seem particularly long, especially to steady-state athletes that are listening to this, but even a three-minute interval, if you go out as hard as you can at the start of a three-minute interval, and then you just hang on for the rest of it, I guarantee you, you're going to have a higher average power if you try to hit a target that's, that's stable, you know, something like 120% all the way across. It's going to be tougher for you to actually hit that 120% average if you just went for three minutes, because... Once again, we're talking about a cascading draw across those energy systems. You're not just, you know, focusing specifically on one. And this is like, I think mountain bikers in particular are really guilty of this sort of thing a lot of the time because of the fact that terrain already makes you work so hard, many cases, right? It's so steep. So then as a result, you end up, or even like, you know, hilly terrain, I don't know, you live in like Vermont and spots like that where it's just extremely like constant steep rollers, right? Whatever uh, terrain you're on. It can, you can kind of fall into this trap where all of your rides actually emulate this to a certain degree. And while you don't have any specific objectives with your training, it ends up wearing you down because this sort of stuff enacts a lot of stress, but it's just not specific stress. So then it makes it really tough when you actually have to be specific outside of those rides. You know, it can be, it can be hard. So yeah, I, I mean, I do want to say this is a very usable interval format, but it would have to be timed really appropriately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nate, is there anything, Nate or Amber, anything that you, and we're probably going to do this, by the way, since we're not in the same room, we can't quite feel the vibes from each other. So um, anything else that, that you two would want to add on this? I've got good vibes. Nope. I was going to say, I'm feeling good vibes. I don't know about you. <laughs> good. I need to go to the awesome. bathroom. That's about it. Okay. Sounds good. If, you, if, if one of I us gets up out. and leaves, it might be that. It might be trying to help a small child or something. Who knows? So uh, Kieran's question, a question on our doc here, guys, let's go into that one it says after four years of using trainer road and listening to the podcast, I finally thought of a question no one has asked before. That's a pretty, that's a pretty <laughs> big one. I recently took nine days off the bike for a family holiday, <laughs> having managed to complete Lamarck before my break, which is a hard steady state effort we're talking about there. I really struggled to finish carry on, which that workout is actually one where you're, it's over unders. So you're sitting right at or around threshold with pretty short little spikes. And I'm sure producer Tucker will be able to pull up the screen so then we can see it. And hopefully I'm right when I say that just for memory there. But, um, and, uh, says, I usually find this workout very manageable. Um, but on my return, it was tougher. So having read faster, the book by Michael Hutchinson, which I would, uh, I would recommend by the way, Chad, I, you've read that one too, I assume. Yeah. I'd, I'd love most of what he's written. Yeah. Amber. I haven't read faster, but I read endurance uh, and I really, really like him too. He does great Endure. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah Endure. That's one. Yeah. Fantastic author. Um, great follow on Twitter as well, by the way. So, uh, Karen says, having read faster by Michael Hutchinson, I started wondering how much this apparent decrease in fitness is actually down to a drop in my blood plasma. After only a few short workouts, I seem to be back where I was. So my questions are number one, how quickly does blood plasma f volume decrease after training stops? Do you want to take these one at a time, Chad, or do you want to run through all of them? No, go ahead and run, run through. Cool. Number two, how long does it take to increase this blood plasma from off the couch to an, an in quotes, athlete level? Is this why Tanita scales have an athlete setting is the final question that's asked there. 
So thanks to the brilliant podcast and app combination. I'm 45 years old and I've never been faster uh, from Kieran. So cool. Thanks, Karen, for training with us. That's awesome. Yeah, good question, Karen. It's really, really thoughtful. Um, let me address just that last one because that's the easiest of these to get. Uh, I just went to Tanita's site because I wanted to know why, how they distinguish between your know, regular body type and athletic body types. And I'm just going to quote from the site, athletic body types are physiologically different than standard adult body types due to muscle mass and hydration level differences. And what, what, was, what struck me as a little interesting is they go on to say athletes tend to have greater muscle mass, that much you know, we can all agree on, and, and tend to be more dehydrated. So they're crediting athletes with being more dehydrated. I kind of see it differently and I think athletes are probably better at hydrating and maintaining high, higher hydration levels, but uh, yeah. that's, that's, how they, that's how they look at it. These differences would skew the body fat reading high when taken with the standard adult mode. Okay. Oh, that's so, interesting. Yeah. yeah. I've always wanted the same thing. <laughs> Turns out it's on their website and all I had to do was read. So <laughs> <laughs> who knew? Who knew? Who knew huh? So where do you want to start with the rest of this one? Okay. Chad? So, so first off, let's kind of touch back on something we've covered in different ways at different times. And that is that training adaptation and the capabilities that they confer fade at different rates. And we've talked about training residuals many times. So just as a quick review, there are some that, that decay comparatively slowly. It's like on the order of 30 or so days. And that's your aerobic capacity, your aerobic endurance, call it what you will. And, and that's because the, the, the adaptations that take place, what's happening within the muscle itself, and we're talking about increase in capillary beds, so more blood vessels, the aerobic enzymes that help us metabolize the energy sources, in this case, in the presence of oxygen, mitochondrial content, they don't just spring up and then go away rapidly. Um, similarly, maximum strength, and I think that's probably because there's a large neuromuscular component. So once the wiring is in place, it doesn't just evaporate overnight if you don't uh, touch it up. A little more quickly in terms of decay would be your anaerobic power, so your shorter power, um, and then your strength endurance, which would be you know, your, your sweet spotish power or your threshold work. And then most quickly, and we're talking over a handful of days, is something along the lines of sprint power and unfortunately you know, blood plasma volume, or fortunately actually because it goes both ways. So it, really, if you just remember, if you just look at it from the perspective that if it develops quickly, it tends to dissipate quickly. If it takes I was just a long gonna... time... Go ahead. I was just going to comment on that. I was like, oh, this is sort of the reverse order of what we see coming, you know, what we see as building through a season, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Good point. Exactly. Okay. So like I said, blood plasma happens to be one of those things, but again, not necessarily a bad thing because if it goes away quickly, it means it kind of ramps up quickly or has the potential to ramp up quickly. So to be clear, a lot of people may not know what we're talking about when we say blood plasma. Um, it's just the liquid component of blood. So blood is either the watery stuff or it's the formed bodies, which are your red blood cells, your white blood cells, and your platelets. So basically all these things float around in this liquid component, which is largely water. It's a, it's a number of other things, but it's largely water. And the more plasma we have, the greater our blood volume. So the greater the amount of blood in our body, which means the greater our stroke volume. So every time our heart beats, the more volume it pushes out. And this means less cardiac effort and a lower heart rate for similar work levels. If you're pushing more blood to the muscle with bigger, you know, effectively bigger heartbeats, bigger volumes, then it doesn't have to beat as many times as it would with lower blood volume. And this also means there's a higher aerobic or oxygen uptake at the same effort level, which is basically what I just described. If it's pushing more oxygen to the muscle with less heartbeats, then you're getting the, the, the possibility of greater aerobic power. There's more oxygen there, so we can do more aerobic work, which means 
um, reduce lactate accumulation because what why does lactate accumulate but when we're working anaerobically if we can do more work aerobically then that anaerobic byproduct isn't going to build up to the same extent um, there's also a, a benefit of increased blood flow to our skeletal muscle and this can reduce rate of glycogen depletion and a couple of the studies that i looked at that looked at legs muscles in particular talked about i mean pretty drastic reductions in the rate of glycogen depletion along the lines of 40 to 50 percent Holy cow. So these are, wow. these are a big deals. So you leave those oh glycogen gosh. stores alone a lot longer if you're pushing, you know, extra fluid, which is carrying extra oxygen, extra you know, nutrients uh, to, the, to, the blood, or, uh, to the working muscle. <sighs> and then, of course, also you know, you're going to lower your core temperature and you're going to have a higher sweat rate because there's greater blood flow to the skin. So that's kind of a win-win a uh, on top of all the other benefits. These so, are all reasons why sauna training is, is exactly. or sauna, some sort of sauna protocol yep. is something that can help make you faster. Exactly. I, it, it can help you just, it just extends your training capabilities and your performance capabilities. Yeah. Chad, um, I just want to quickly follow up on the, so the increased blood flow effect um, that spares mm -hmm. glycogen, um, is that, does that apply to hydration status as well? Or is that too small of a blood plasma volume change to have a significant you know, effect? It, it did vacillate, or one of these studies did vacillate back and forth between plasma volume and total body water. So I kind of jumped tracks at some point, but mm -hmm. I'll, I'll dig those up and we can, can uh, tie them to this. That's just really interesting. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a lot more, uh, it's just a heck of a lot more than I would have expected. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Okay. So, so effectively what happened for you, Kieran, I think is that, you know, well, I know you stopped training and when you stop training, you, you've reduced the training stimulus. And in turn, you got a decrease in your plasma volume, which means your heart rate's going to bump up to achieve the same level of, you know, blood distribution to the working muscle. Uh, this also impairs your thermoregulation. All these things make it more stressful. And these are all things that can happen over the course of a simple recovery week, which is why we do recovery weeks that aren't free of work. We don't just sit and rest and catch up. Rather, we keep on working because we don't want these adaptations to go away. And if you're noticing some of the adaptations do go away, maybe your recovery week is a little too easy. Maybe there are ways that you can limit that. But it, honestly, it probably doesn't matter because a couple of days back in the saddle and you're going to be right back on track and you're only going to lose so much. Um, so again, the changes in plasma volume, both directions depend on the circumstances. So for instance, and I think we mentioned this one back uh, when we talked thermo uh, or heat acclimation, sauna heat acclimation, but Sauka's 2015 study in uh, medicine and science and sports, they, did, they subjected their subjects to heat exposure for three to four days and noticed a pretty hefty expansion in their plasma volume. It was the greatest on the fifth day. In this study and in studies in general, they're looking at something along the lines of 4 to 15%, but that range is a pretty big one and can vary as far as uh, from 3% all the way up to 27%. So these can be big changes in a really vital component in terms of well, a number of things that I just, just talked about. Um, and then a good heat acclimation protocol along the lines of 7 to 10 days can have similar benefits even in high-level athletes. So you don't have to be off the couch to see a lot of these same benefits conveyed. And then it's, it's, it's absolutely worth mentioning that endurance training on its own does this, especially in hot conditions. And you can just turn off the wow. fan and, and increase this response, these heat shock proteins that we've talked about in the past. All these responses that come because of heat stress can be achieved simply by ramping up your core temperature. And just about any workout does that. More so if you turn off that fan, more so if you do it on a hot day outdoors, et cetera. 
And it works especially well when it comes to that muscle endurance work. And this is uh, pointed out by Andrew, Dr. Andrew Coggin with tempo work, pretty big bump up in plasma volume. Threshold work, even bigger. And VO2 max work, even bigger. Hmm. But Andrew Coggin also pointed out in one of his studies that the half-life of our plasma volume is about one week. So you take a week off and you saw you know, 20% increase, you're going to have about a 10% increase at the end of that week of effectively detraining. So in Kieran's case, he probably lost about roughly half of any of his recent plasma volume gains. But silver lining is you're going to get that back, get back on the bike, get training again. The first couple of workouts might not be quite as uh, up to snuff as you'd like them to be, but they'll get back on track quickly. Chad, so is this, sorry, Jonathan, is this why, uh, so when I take like a week off for travel and I come back that first workout, my heart rate is pegged. Like it's totally pegged and the RP isn't that much higher, but it's just like pumping. I'd be willing to bet this is maybe entirely the reason. If not, then most of the reason. Wow. This is also like a, so this is, you know, people always talk about summer form, you know, like coming into form in the summer Mm. and everything else. And I wonder how much of this just, you know, naturally happens over the course of the fact that the warmer months come along, you spend more time training in that environment. Um, one thing I do want to add on this, because whenever we're sharing any sort of topics like this, like I feel like all of us listening to this are like, where's the actionable takeaway? I'm going (laughs) to apply it. And you have to balance this though, right, Chad? Because if you come into this and you just think, okay, time to, I'm going to do all of my workouts and just do it in the heat because I'm going to get all of this benefit Mm -hmm. there. Number one, there is a ceiling that you'll hit with that in terms of these sort of returns. It's not like you can endlessly increase blood plasma volume. Yep. Then number two, this has a detrimental effect, effect a, a profound one on your ability to be able to produce work. More well, heat is tough. Exactly right. And therefore the stimulus is diluted again. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is a, a perfect example of what I'm talking about when people think, well, if this helps my training, then I'm just going to heap this on top of the training that I'm already doing. And, they don't, <laughs> and, and it can work. It can work. I'm not trying to criticize you specifically or people who take this approach, but you do have to recognize that it is another form of stress. It's going to take a toll. So it has to come at some expense somewhere else. You can't just when keep he, piling on. I when totally he said you, <laughs> he meant me. Because when I, I totally, see something, yeah, I just I totally do more and more. Nate. I totally well, okay. Nate. We, we, we often say that Nate is a maximalist, not a, not a moderationalist, not a minimalist, <laughs> sure. a maximalist, and, and, right? And sometimes that works. <laughs> yep. Yeah, exactly. Uh, okay. I don't have any science to back this up. But <laughs> <laughs> no, a little bit. This, this is going to be good. This is how... Uh, I've noticed this is how I've applied it. And I think it, like right now, this could be really like mm, poignant, I think is the right word. So not everyone has a sauna at home, right? If you look at my Instagram, by the way, I'm 4,000 followers away from being able to give you guys all links uh, and Pearson 99. But I did a TR office tour and it's in my, my uh, story highlights. So you can look at it. But in there, we have a sauna. But right now, since the office is closed, it is my personal sauna. But most people do not have saunas access right now. And this is what I, I, I realized this is what I did. And it, I got a big up um, bump in FTP while I was doing this. And I think it could apply to a lot of people right now is in the morning, like to do, Brandon does this too, double days. Like if you have, maybe you had a commute before and now you don't, you do a 30 or 60 minute aerobic ride and you don't use your fan, do it right in the morning, do it fasted, drink your black coffee, right? With some water. And again, this is going to be more stress. So you have to like do it, uh, you have to be aware and you don't want it to take away from your intensity. Is that right, Chad? Like if you're, you can't hit your intense workouts, you want to take this out first. 
Yep, exactly right. Yeah, so you do your 30 or 60 minute pet it or pet it minus one or taku or something in the morning. It's a little bit more stress, fasted, which is cool. And then do the uh, no fan. And I bet you, you're going to see a, a pretty good increase. Just one with the extra TSS, um, two, the fasted, and three, the, uh, the no fan. You could probably actually do, yeah. And if it's too much stress, you could do, like maybe you do, you remove, you do the fan first, right? In the middle, you're like, oh, this is really hard. You turn the fan back on. Because um, it's, I'm talking about three, like more volume, fasted, and uh, uh, no fan at the same time. So that's like three things at once. But I hope that makes sense to everybody. But that's kind of cool to do. And you could have, replace that in your commute, right? And you have to take a shower. Like you don't have to do your hair in the morning unless you're on a podcast. Uh. <laughs> no, this is exactly the approach I took when we were gearing up for Kona this year. So, you know, I have to get my butt handed to me basically every day at Kona last year. I, I tried to drum up a little fitness this year, and this was one of the things I did. And a lot of those rides were fanless. And you're a stopping mess. It's disgusting. You definitely go directly to the shower right after. Mm -hmm. But it's, it, it paid pretty big dividends because my training volume wasn't a heck of a lot higher, but I did add these additional, uh, I think all of them were one-hour rides to three or four days a week. Yeah, you manage the so Chad, I perceive you as a person that struggles with heat more than the average person, and that may yeah. be incorrect, but I feel like you this year at Kona, you were you did really well in the heat. It it wasn't yeah. like a barrier. Yeah, heat usually destroys me, but this year was the exception. It was pretty encouraging. Mm -hmm. Let's move into Tim's question. It says I love everything about Trainer Road and I'm a subscriber for life. Thank you, Tim. We appreciate that. He says, I recently brought or bought my first power meter and I'm excited to start doing Trainer Road workouts outside as well on my head unit, which is super cool. Uh, we actually have a blog post about how to set up your Garmin, by the way, that we recently put up uh, with a custom screen for the Edge 1030, 830, and 530. They have new data fields you can use that are really cool and yeah, make your workouts easier. To interrupt you there, and you can make it look just like Trainer Road. And if you click mm -hmm. our Strava or our Instagrams, it's kind of snowing here, but uh, it it's so so cool. Oh, um, the awesome. Garmin to do it like you can you can seriously do a Trainer workout outside and do it well as long as you have the roads, which I think we're going to talk about. Yeah, and and also like it's worth saying too in this time of you know social distancing and lockdown and everything else. Um, depending on the, you know, the situation where you currently are, this could be an option. And there is a, a huge amount of benefit to, to getting outside if you're just stuck inside at all times and don't have your usual outside time that you're getting. Uh, so you can still nail your workouts and you can do them outside. So we have an article coming up on how to do something similar for your Wahoo head unit too, by the way, and because you can customize those screens as well. That being said, uh, we understand that in some places, like right now, Spain and France, or Spain and... Uh Italy, Italy, it is illegal to ride outside. And there is the social concept of like, or constructive, if your ERs are overrun in your area or hospitals, um, you don't want to ride outside, crash, and then have to take one of those beds. Or it could oh, be just yeah. dangerous to you. So again, this, this is changing quickly. Um, I just want to say we're aware of that and you should be aware of it too. And understand in your area what the situation is before you go right outside. For sure. Uh, okay, so Tim says, however, I am learning quickly that holding a constant power output outdoors is a lot harder than I was expecting, especially on rolling roads. Uh, all of us are nodding, by the way. Um, <laughs> yeah. If you can't, if you're just listening to this, we're all nodding. Uh, he says, it doesn't help that I live in central Pennsylvania where there's no such thing as a flat road. So I'm wondering if you guys have any tips or advice on how to best maintain or, or for how best to maintain steady watts on rolling terrain. I can't seem to find a balance between constantly changing my cadence versus constantly changing gears when I'm on rolling terrain. 
I've tried anticipating quick changes in grade by dropping gears and upping cadence, but this leads to a very spiky power curve, even using three or five second power smoothing. I assume this is something that will get better with practice, but if there are tips you have uh, to help me speed up that process, I'd very much appreciate it from Tim. So first of all, Tim, you're absolutely right. And especially since you just got a power meter, like uh, I think all of us probably here, when you first got a power meter, I thought it was broken. Like, yeah. And, and yeah. I had five second power smoothing on. It didn't matter. I thought it was broken because it was bouncing everywhere. It's normal, yeah. right? It's, yeah. it's a skill. And it's the first thing people say. They're like, this is impossible to look at because it's <laughs> so crazy. And mm-hmm. I think it's, I think the best writer, especially if you're by your, like you're soloing, um, and you're in a race or something to be able to be steady and not up and down, like do a workout that's like just 90% of threshold and then do that same workout and throw in like spikes. You will not finish it or you'll, it'll be a lot, lot harder if you have those spikes and you're spiking above threshold all the time. This is such a great skill to practice. I think Chad's going to, and Amber are going to go into it, but like, don't give up, uh, figure out how to do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, Chad, do you, do you want to jump I, in? Yeah, sure. I only have a couple of quick points. And one of them cool. was that, that your, your power profile, when you look at the file or even when you look at your power meter as it rolls, it doesn't matter how much it's smooth. It's going to be all over the place. So don't sweat that. Um, gearing is one way you can address it. If you know, uh, it, it, this is at home. So I live in a pretty hilly neighborhood too. I'm not sure there's gearing that would allow me to keep steady power up and down the hills because they're pretty severe pitches. If they're gentler, the gearing may be a way to go about it. In which case you're, you're already on the right track. You're shifting a bunch. You're anticipating, um, you can vary the terrain. So if you, if you have access to trails and, and maybe they're a little less, uh, severe than the roadways do make that a consideration. And then of course, train indoors. That's pretty sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. One, one thing before you jump in on this Amber, I, so I actually, the first time I really started to figure this out was when I was riding with a professional um, Ironman triathlete, Osa Lundstrom. And whenever, and she was like, I'm just holding a power target. And like this, were, or this for this interval, I'm going to ride at 280, right? Uh, let's just assume. And when we go up hills, we weighed about the same. But when we go up hills, it, I was like, geez, this feels so easy. Because I wasn't used to training with power at the time. And then when we would go downhills, I was like, you're a psycho. You're going <laughs> so hard and so fast. But once you get a power meter, you realize that, right? Like it, you don't, if you have to hold a steady power target, once you're going up a pitch, it's a lot easier to overshoot that mark. When you're going downhill, it's a lot harder to hold that power up at first. Over time, it'll get to the point where that just becomes second nature. And it isn't as hard or difficult. It's just different. And you'll be able to maintain it. But it just, I guess, adding to this point that it will come with time. When I do my outside workouts, I can have over rolling terrain. Even I can have an interval that's 20 minutes long. And for that 20 minutes long, I'll have one watt different between my normalized and average power. Right. So it's like, it's very evenly paced in the end. That's, I think one of the worst things you can do though, is look at your power. And if you're trying to hold 200 watts and when it says 197, you try to press harder on your pedals. Because then if you do that, then it's going to read 210. And then after that, you're going to ease up and it's going to read 180. And then you're just going to constantly be doing that. Instead, it's honing in on what it feels like when you're close to your target power and really holding that feeling. That feeling will evolve over time. So you, you, know, you, you periodically check back in. And this is another safety note too. You know, it's, it's very important on the safety side not to just be staring at your head unit and obsessing at staying really close to your power. Just figure out what the feeling is like close to that 
and then occasionally check in to kind of guide that feeling back into place. Amber, uh, what, what would you have on this one? Yeah, I, I totally agree with everything these guys are saying. It, it is a learning curve. And for the record, I didn't start working with a power meter until like my third year racing professionally. And even after racing for three years professionally, I was on a learning curve with the power meter because it's a totally, it's a, it's a completely different beast. And I think before you're actually getting the feedback of a power meter, um, if you don't have a cycling computer, the natural kind of metric that you orient to is steady speed. And that's a really, really different sensation. You know, Jonathan, to your point, if you're going for steady speed, you're gonna, it's going to feel harder going up the hills and a lot easier going down the hills. But then when you're going for steady power output, you feel like you're just crawling up the hill and then you feel like <laughs> you're a maniac on the downhill. It's, it's, it's funny. It's just, and it's all relative. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a total learning curve. And I feel your pain. I live in Connecticut and the profiles around here are just a sawtooth. And so finding a flat route is it's just, it's not going to happen. It's just a relatively flat, flat route is the best thing that you can hope for. Um, and I've raced around Pennsylvania, so I know what you mean. Um, I, I will say that around here, um, sort of the, the glacial movements were north south. So roads that run north south tend to be a little bit less hilly than roads that run, run east west. And I think it might be a similar situation in Pennsylvania. So that might be something to think about. Um, so if you know you need to do a steady state power out, uh, power interval, you know, maybe look for one of those roads that's running north south, and it'll just make it a little bit easier on you. Um, a few things that have worked for me on this, even after years of training with a power meter and getting better and having been on that learning curve, I still cannot hold super super steady power over rolling terrain. It's just it's it's hard. So what I do is I just set kind of a range of power. So to Jonathan's point, you know, if I'm targeting 200 watts and I drop down to 198, I'm not going to panic about that because that's about right. And usually what I'll do is I'll sort of give myself a range of like, okay, I don't want to go any higher than this number, but I also don't want to go any lower than this number. And I'll just try to keep my power somewhere above a floor that I set for myself on that interval. And then, you know, as, as the road kicks up a little bit, I don't want to go too hard because I know that that's going to sap my legs and I might not be able to hold the power for the rest of the interval. So shooting for a range uh, with more of a focus on the floor of that range, I think is really helpful. Um, and Jonathan brought this up too. It's the feeling. It's the sensation of the pressure on the pedals. And that's the thing that you're really looking to train. So you can use this as like a mental training, a mental focus training exercise to um, start with shorter, you know, intervals to try to train this, like go for a minute, use the first 30 seconds to calibrate the pressure that you're supposed to feel on the pedal, and then see if you can hold that power just by thinking about the sensation and not by not by chasing the number on your computer and see if you can do that. Um, it's just, it's, it's a good way to train your mental focus too. Um, because when you're in the middle of a race, you're not necessarily going to have the opportunity to be looking at your power meter and you're going to be want to race. You're going to want to be able to race on feel in those situations where you need it. So it's just a good skill to learn and to train and it's a good challenge. Um, but yeah, it's a really good way to, to train your focus as well. A uh, crazy thing. We have a Franktown time trial course here. Um, the three of us have done it and, uh, the three, uh, Jonathan, Chad and I, and so is Justin Rossi. And I've looked at all of our files and Jonathan and I are the worst at pacing this because it's kind of <laughs> like has some rollers in it. Chad's pretty good. And then Justin Rossi is scaringly even. And if you guys remember, he's the one on the chase nationals got second in nationals two years in a row. He was amazing. on last week. Yep. He's amazing week. time trialist. And his power is like just right at threshold even the whole way you, you wouldn't even tell that there were hills 
And I'm, Honestly, John, you're kind of the worst at this out of us three. <laughs> but in this case, if, at that race, on yes. that course, yeah, <laughs> yes. uh, yeah. You, you would you'd go really far hard out. But then Chad is like really really good at it too, and I think I believe he's he's got a pretty good time on that too, um, mm-hmm. especially relative to the power output that he was doing compared to us. Like he put out more average power, um, which is crazy. The second thing is, I don't have any specific numbers on this yet, and I want to be very very careful and diligent before we release it. But I can say this part with confidence. If you're over 60 and you are a um, riding like next to threshold, all those spikes above threshold are going to hurt you more than someone at 30. So if you're an older rider and you're doing time trials or you're in a breakaway or something like that, be very, very careful of how much you spike over threshold if you want maximum average power output, um, which is probably going to mean maximum speed inside of that. So if you're doing a time trial and there's a little hills, I would not be pushing it above if you're over 60 um, compared to someone who's 30. It's, it's all relative. I wouldn't be doing it anyways, but I would yeah. be just take extra, extra diligence yeah, based on was, the data that we have for riders over 60. The, the last thing that I, I would add to this too, and to kind of, I guess, uh, give you some hope in this case, Tim, of, and I guess really what you can look forward to, have, have all of us here ever been in a situation where you've been trying to you know, hold a steady power and you shift a couple gears or you shift one gear and your legs automatically adjust for the resistance and your power doesn't spike. And like, when that, whenever that happens, I'm like, my legs are like an erg trainer. This is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> but it's what happens when you get used to, especially since in this case here, you know, Tim, you're training with Trainer Road. You've been following structured workouts and you're going to be doing that. You'll have a big leg up on, on holding steady power and knowing what that's like. Um, and, and having an erg trainer, you still get the same thing. It's not like if you have an erg, it, it, it gets rid of it. You understand that same relationship of, of basically, you know, velocity and force that, that it goes on with your legs and you're trying to create power. So you'll get to the point, Chad, where you'll be much more steady than you think, uh, which is really cool. And at last, oh yeah, go ahead. Or, I, sorry, Chad, I just, not Chad. <laughs> that's, we, we all understand. Um, <laughs> I, I should probably elaborate. I said train indoors. What I meant to say is that you can work on this indoors just as you, just as you can outdoors. I even have a couple mm-hmm. of workouts where I, I coax people from, you know, maybe eight minute interval to eight minute interval to this one, try to limit your range to 15 watts plus or minus next one, 10 watts plus or minus next one, five watts plus or minus. And you try to just, just bring that, just narrow that range gradually over time. It's probably not going to happen over the course of a workout, but it's fun to try. That's yeah. if you're not in erg mode, you can do that in the device setting. Um, and do the resistance. And I do that a lot too. I think it's beneficial, especially in really hard workouts to have that feeling like mm-hmm. this is what 125% feels like mm-hmm. to Jonathan's point. You can, you can even do it in erg mode I mean, to a lesser extent. I've been in erg mode and, and really tried to, to limit how much it wavers. Yeah. Yeah. You can mm-hmm. always be smoother, right? Um, the last thing too that, that kind of helps with this with outside workouts is you'll have your workout screen that you've customized per that blog post that we have up on trainer on how to customize your Garmin and the same thing with a Wahoo, but on Garmin screens, all you have to do is just swipe back over to see the Garmin screen. And it actually gives you a range through which like, you know, it, the power target is in the middle of that range, but it gives you a range and it's actually like a visual from this anchor point to this anchor point. And so if at first you're, you're noticing that it's distracting and a little bit frustrating, flip over to that screen, look at that for a while. You'll see that it's really not that big of a deal. You know, from second to second, things are changing, but that's it. And then actually, I I lied. One more point on this. I think a lot of people, and this is a question that, uh, um, that we've all have many times, 
you look at normalized power, or average power for your interval instead, and you'll just try to do that. But a, 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 a tricky thing about that is a lot of the time something happens with your interval. You start hard, which is really common, or you had to slow down and make a turn or slow down for some reason and drop your wattage down. For the rest of that interval, your average power will read low, but your goal should not be to ride over your power target to drag that average back up. Your goal should just be every, every second, just constantly try to stay close to that power. And if you have a situation where for some reason your power spikes above or below, don't worry about that. Don't try to drag your average back up. Just still try to stay close to that. Because when you work at a specific intensity, specific things happen in your body. And that's what we're going after. We're not going after uh, uh, you know, a total accumulation by the end of the interval in terms of like an average power necessarily. So yeah. would you guys agree or disagree with that? Totally agree with that. And I'll just add a quote that stuck in my mind in my career. So I was working with a coach earlier on and I was, you know, new athlete, wanted to do everything right. And so I was one of those that would like ride around the block to get the last five minutes to make sure I hit my volume target for the day. And my coach, I remember laughed at me one day and just said, nah, your physiology is just not that specific. <laughs> so. that's, a, that's a good way to think of it. Your body doesn't know, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, honestly, like you, you do the best you can, but to your point, Jonathan, like as long as you're within the range, you know, of what you're, of the system that you're trying to target, you're going to get the stress and the specific adaptations that you want. So, um, yeah, that's don't, don't, don't worry about making it perfect. Your, your physiology is just not that specific. <laughs> Andrew's question says, hello, trainer road, uh, says I have started to follow consistent structured training this year and want to start training or start racing. There are a few local races I plan on participating in. And with the new USA cycling rule changes, I could start in cat five, which is now called novice, or I could start in cat four. A little Googling suggests that an FTP of about 3.7 watts per kilogram is what I have. And that might make me competitive in cat three racing, except that I have zero racing experience. So should I ride in novice and get the experience, which used to be cat five, or should I start in cat four? Thank you for considering my question. Uh, so yeah, we haven't actually talked about this specific thing yet since now. Good question. It's optional, mm -hmm. right? Like you don't have to start in, in cat five or novice. Yeah. D can I take this one being someone who's went through this and you guys can tell me if I'm right or wrong? A hundred percent ride cat five. Uh, like that, that is what it is for, for riders that have not experienced um, a race situation. And if you are a new rider, here's what I'd want you to do is first be able to ride by yourself, do all the normal things, drink water bottle, you know, ride with one hand, um, while you're riding Two, ride in a group safely, like do group dynamics, pace turns, all that sort of stuff. And then three, a race. And uh, just because you ride in a group does not mean you're going to be good in a race situation in a group because it is much, much different. And, uh, like tolerances are tighter, people are closer to you. It can kind of freak you out. Accelerations are a lot different, um, filling in the gaps. So totally start in cat five. If you are blowing apart every race and you feel totally comfortable in it, then go to cat four where you're not getting experience. But I would definitely get some rides. And that's what this new category is for is people who do not have race experience. Um, and then at 3.7 watts per kg, you might think like you're going to be competitive in cat three, but it's just, it's so different. So much of it is skill-based and especially based on your weight in the course, um, 3.7 might not be enough. Or um, if you're 240 pounds, 3.7 probably is pretty good and you're going to like destroy some people. But if you're 120 pounds, 3.7 might not make you competitive in a flat crit, but maybe in a hilly crit, it does. Um, so really get that race experience and two plug for us, 
uh, this is all free, but I would go on YouTube and watch our entire race analysis series that I think, uh, you know, we've all went through and it just, there's a playlist there and that's where we walk you through what to do in a race that will get you such better race craft and skill that you'll be way ahead of those cat fives. You'll be able to like kind of apply those race where the, maybe the demands apply those skills that you learn without the demands of the race being extremely hard. Because when you're not in over your head, I think you can learn a lot um, and practice like different kind of techniques. Like, okay, I'm going to practice moving from back to front in this race when it slows down every time. And you don't really need to have a race outcome goal because your results don't matter. Um, I'm going to be practice like staying towards the front for this race or maybe for this half of the race. Um, I'm going to practice letting other people fill in the gaps for this time. Uh, I'm going to practice on this time looking ahead in the field and seeing when they start to coast, I'm going to just do a couple extra pedal strokes, right? Um, and so that I, uh, or when they start to accelerate, I'm going to accelerate a little bit earlier, even though the people in front of me aren't accelerating. Um, I'm going to practice like going through the turns next to somebody, getting my handlebars in front of somebody else. All of these things that you'll see in our race analysis videos, this is the time to do it because you don't worry about the race, the, the results. Then after that, go into cat four, then try to win, right? Try to apply these with, uh, and figure out how you can win too, because there's, you could do that in cat five also. I don't think you really know how you're going to win. You might think now, but until you try different things in the race, maybe it's a breakaway, maybe it's a, maybe it's a 200 meter sprint, maybe it's a 500 meter sprint, right? Maybe it's a one minute solo breakaway. Maybe it's a counterattack. Uh, you don't know what kind of racer you are really until you start trying different things. Yeah. And one, one thing a lot, or actually one other tactic that's really good to practice, especially in cap five, when you start out is for the last five laps, I'm going to hold a consistent position within the field. Like I'm going to try to stay fifth wheel, right? Like that's like your goal. And, and those sort of exercises, it's really just drills and you're just training yourself. We actually had, I had somebody reach out on, on Instagram the other day and they sent me a message and they let, uh, let me know that they went from five to two in a year, just like you did, Nate. And they went from five to two and they said that the training was really productive that, you know, they follow our training plans and everything else. But they said the YouTube stuff was just huge for them. And they ended up getting a ton of points because they basically said that they just marked down all the experience. And then because of that, it honestly, like if you, if you execute in a disciplined manner on those sort of rules with racing, which watch all the videos and you'll pick them all up. It's almost like you're cheating. It's crazy because you can beat people that are so much like faster than you or oh. have more power, everything else. I beat five watt per kilo riders when I'm at like 3.9. Um, now that's at sea level. So below I'm probably more like 4.1 or 4.2 and I'm heavier, but yeah, beat, totally beat people who are way more fit than me all the time. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah your yeah. FTP, it's, it's one of many tools in your toolbox, right? Yeah. And it's, it can be a very powerful tool, but when it comes to racing, it's not the only one. Um, and that's, that's what getting race experience does for you is it expands the tools in your toolbox, which are all really, really important for being successful and performing well on a race how did, day. How did you figure it out, Amber? Because you went like, like <laughs> she walked through the field. Your she was like, this is easy. <laughs> your trajectory was like, boom, like you had this huge engine from swimming. Right. But yeah, at the same time. Like you had to figure yeah. it all out. Did you lean I, on teammates or like yeah. what were your yeah. resources? I want to know too, Amber, when did it get hard? Because I think you walked through the field. Like when was it you're like, wow, I need to start using tactics rather than just <laughs> destroy everyone. Yeah. Well, I got really, really lucky, you guys. So um, when I started, when I, when I started racing, I was racing collegiate racing and um, I didn't take it seriously the first season that I raced, but then the second season that I did, I, I got you know, I got very serious. I wanted to be good at this. And, um, my teammates were all very experienced. And in particular, I started 
dating David, who's now my husband, and he was already a Cat One racer, and he's a sprinter. So he, you know, in particular, had to be really wily about getting to the finish. Right? He wasn't a climber who could just climb away from everybody on a mountaintop finish. He had to be really tactical in every race that he was racing. So literally from the very first race of the season, he would, we would sit down before the race and he would just say 10 to go do this, 15 to go do this. And he taught me a lot of the tactical strategies that I needed to be successful. So, I mean, he literally sat me down and was like, yeah, it's great that you're strong, but here's how you race smart. And I had that kind of guidance from the very first race that I did that season. So um, I think if it hadn't been for that, it would have been a much less steep trajectory because I would have, I would have been figuring this out on my own. I would have been figuring it out through trial and error. And I still did figure a lot out through trial and error, but I had such a leg up because I had mentors who knew what they were talking about and who were really guiding me through every race. So marry a cat one sprinter. That's probably the best <laughs> advice. Uh, too, this is more, this is more Amber not talking to, talking about the things she's done. So we, we were, we were at a, a product management offsite and we were going through like some of the races that I was going to do and stuff and talking about them with Pete and Amber's like, Oh yeah, I won that one. Oh, I won that one too. Oh, I won that one. I won that one too. I was like, yeah. she, I'm like, what about this one? She's like, Oh, I didn't do that one. Like, otherwise but, uh, she would have won it. <laughs> I think she won all of them. Is there, yeah. uh, yeah, I had a few shots over a couple of years to, to win them, but I think you won like every single race, which is, uh, probably annoying for the other uh, women in your category. It was, it was a lot of fun. I will say, um, what, when, <laughs> uh, getting to the professional ranks was more difficult from a physio physiological perspective. Like it was physically more taxing, but I think that a lot, the nice thing about learning race tactics is they're not complicated. They're not easy to execute, but it's not rocket science. And the same principles apply at you know, a, a local or a regional race as they do at the professional level. It's just, you may have more and bigger teams that have more matches to, to burn. Um, so the tactics will be different. You know, like the actual tactics that play out during a race will be different, but the tactical principles are all exactly the same. Um, when it got really, really hard for me was when I got to Europe. And then that was more about uh, just learning to position within a field that had very, very different dynamics than what I was, than what I was used to. Um, but th that's, you know, tactically speaking, it's all, it's all the same. It's all the same principles. So just really start paying attention to that and become a student of the sport and, and you really won't regret it. How were the dynamics different in Europe compared to the U S? Um, it's really more about how the, how the riders move through the field. And it's very different from country to country. Um, and you know, going from a race in the U S where we've got maybe 60, 80 women in the field in the professional ranks to a race where we have 200 in the field. And you're not racing on big, spacious, wide American roads. You're racing on really tiny, you know, cobbled roads in Belgium or really, really narrow roads through villages in the mountains of Italy. Like there's road furniture that you're not familiar with. And I think we've talked about this on a previous podcast, but um, the patterns of movement are so different that it really sets your brain back to square one in terms of a learning process. And learning how to uh, develop not a race intuition in terms of tactics, but a race intuition in terms of understanding the flow of riders in the field. So how to surf the movement of the field to maintain your position, to get into position, um, how to read riders. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a very different, just a different dynamic, a different set of patterns that your brain has to learn all over again. I think we've seen that with like professionals, like top level US athletes, they go to Europe. 
And it happens across all different disciplines, mountain biking, cyclocross, where it's a different type of racing and they have yeah. to like spend a lot of time to learn it. Um, and it, and it really like brings them down for a second. Uh, and I think we've yeah. seen it the other way too, where some euros come here and the American, they do pretty, Americans can still do well, uh, because it's, again, it's majority American. So the field's different, but also the yeah. field in Europe is probably deeper than I know. I know it is deeper than us. There's yeah, a lot of nuance in execution, right? Like it's, it's, um, and, and especially when you're talking about race tactics and in, in, in general, because it's so dependent on what every, you know, everything else that's going on and all the variables of the course that when you can become like, you know, like a, a finely tuned instrument, like what Amber's talking about racing in the pros for a long time, and you can just basically deal with whatever circumstances are coming to you, that, that all comes with time, but you have to do it like in a heads up manner too, right? Amber, yeah. like, I'm sure that it wasn't like you just got there and then once you figured it out, it was like, cool, got it figured out and done. It's still like a constant process, I would assume. And it's a very intentional process, I think is what you're getting at. You don't mm -hmm. just go and learn it through osmosis. Like you have to pay attention during to the race and okay, that person just did that. Why would they have done that? And if you, you know, early days, it's really hard to do that on the spot during the race. And that's why it's so important to find somebody, a mentor, a fellow racer, racer that you can sit down with after the race and, and debrief and talk about what happened. Why did this person do that? Um, when this happened, you know, if I had done this, you know, what do you think would have, would have been the outcome? Um, those types of discussions, it's exactly what we do with the race analysis videos. It's so, so helpful. Um, so the race analysis videos are really good to watch, to see how to do that. You'll learn a lot about race tactics and what to do, what not to do. Um, and it'll give you a good template for how to apply this in your own racing too, because the more you pay attention to this and really intentionally and purposefully try to learn from each race experience, the faster you'll pick up on everything and internalize it and develop a really great, strong race intuition. The Ivex, <clears throat> go ahead, Chad. Andrew, if I can offer my two cents, I, I, I would just strongly caution against putting too much weight into your, your Watts for KG at this point in your career. Yeah. I think everything yeah. we've talked about so far just demonstrates how that is only one aspect of what you have going for you. And kudos to Nate. That was a super good answer. And it demonstrates or illustrates exactly what I'm talking about. There's so much to be learned in these lower category races that are going to benefit you as you move through the ranks. Yeah. Uh, two, I'm experiencing this in P12 right now. It's different than Cat 2, Cat 3, Cat 4. Cat 2, 3, 4 are kind of similar, at least in they Northern are. California. But mm -hmm. P12, it is way different. And you just watched the last video where I like got dropped with like 500 meters to go or something. Um, I was relying too much on my fitness because I think I did some bad habits of moving up on the outside of the, the field at the end. And I could just be like, oh, I'm just going to do 600 watts for 20 seconds, get into position. And then I, where I, and that really hurt me. So when it really did go off, I did not have enough fitness left because the, the P12 guys are like, they're stronger than me. Where before yeah. maybe I had the highest FTP in the race. So I could do that on a flat course and I was pretty arrow. But now I got to, I need to be a lot smarter in my racing and move up on the inside. It's probably, uh, it should have been a little bit harder for me, right? Like to Chad's point, if maybe I'd be a smarter racer right now and I just have better, I see, I know what I know I, I did wrong, but I probably have better habits, right? I'm moving up inside the field rather than just loop. I'm going to go on the outside, uh, go to the front and, uh, try to go for a one minute bomb or something. Yeah. Like that. High levels of fitness allow you to become uh, tactically or strategically lazy. Yeah. yeah. Sloppy. Totally. Yeah. yeah that's a, that, so yeah, that's a really good point. 
if anything too, watching our race analysis videos will be great because you'll get um, advice from Pete and Amber on Nate's races and my races and some other people's races too. So when you see that perspective of like multiple racers, because Nate and I race differently, right? So you'll get to see how multiple people make mistakes and how they can yeah. improve those mistakes. A lot of mistakes, right, John? <laughs> many. Like so many mistakes. <laughs> Too many. So much learning. Even when, you, even when Nate and I race together, we make a whole different sort of mistake. Oh. It's like oh, yeah. once we get together, it's like synergistic suck. But, like by the way, the, like... last, the last one we did, we raced together. We were so close to having a great outcome. I it was know. like, it was probably two seconds of decision. Yeah. Where like, and both of us could have like, could have fixed it. Yes. And it's, it just hurts. Like it hurts. So doesn't it hurt? Like Jonathan, oh, like, yeah. uh, <laughs> oh, so we, bad. it hurts more doing it together. Cause I feel I let you down by not communicating. And I feel uh, I let you down by not being yeah. in the right position. <laughs> Which is, I could have just said, stay right for like a second. And then yeah. we would have been in a, such a better situation. Who knows what the outcome would have been, but sure. such a better situation. Yeah. Uh, and one thing to add to this, but this is a really good point, And I'm sure you exercise this, Amber. I'm sure you did as well, Chad, is uh, this is a principle that, that we have in place here at work here. You know, we always focus on constant improvement uh, and radical candor and extreme ownership, right? Like those are like three big things. And when you talk about racing, constant improvement should be your goal. Radical candor, you have to care enough about the people that you're, if you were racing together and yourself, that you are honest, um, but from a position of caring with yourself. And then when we talk about ownership, like you have to own your mistakes and recognize, like even if you don't in instantly recognize your mistake, and let's say, let's say Nate and I, in this latest race video we did, let's say Nate did some glaringly obvious mistake, right? And if he did some glaringly obvious mistake, it's really tempting for that person, for the other person to just say, yep, it was all that person's fault. But chances are we can always improve something about how you raced, right? Each yep. person can find some way they can improve. And then like, if you think about it from this perspective, it's like, what's the worst that can happen? You find out areas that you can improve in and the next time you're better, like we should always be looking for ways that we can improve. That yeah. extreme that, that'll really help your process. Sorry, but that'll really help your process in moving up and making sure that you take advantage of all the racing opportunities you have instead of just letting them blow by. That extreme ownership thing, uh, Jocko Wilkes has it. And if you Googled extreme ownership, you'll see a video. He actually did it in Reno, which is pretty cool. That's just a coincidence. Um, but you can, he has a book about it. But I want to give uh, an example. It's always your fault. And I want to say this. I do a culture meeting with all new employees. And I just take a minute. I'm going to go through what I say to people. Let's say we release a bug and at a place that doesn't have an extreme ownership, the CEO goes, come on guys, like, why don't you do this? Why aren't you on top of this? I told you to have less bugs. Where uh, an extreme ownership CEO would say, this is my fault. I did not put in the systems and processes for this bug not to get released. I obviously need to do a better job communicating how important this is and put in the system so that this doesn't happen. Uh, the engineer who's at a, uh, who doesn't practice extreme ownership goes, well, that wasn't in the test cases. The product manager didn't write it down. Um, it, like, how was I supposed to know? It wasn't a list. I did what I was told. The extreme ownership engineer says, well, this is my fault, right? This isn't Nate's fault. This is my fault. Uh, I could have I, I uh, asked about this case. I'm a smart engineer. I could go through here. I could think about edge cases more. The same thing with the, uh, the QA person, the test team. They could have said, oh, there wasn't the test case. Of course, I would do it. I'm just following the sheet. Everything checked off. They, they could also say the same thing. This is my fault. This isn't the engineer's fault. This isn't the CEO's fault. I could have done this. Same with the product manager. And if you get a whole culture of an entire company doing this, you don't get the, 
oh, you, you're passing blame. You get in a meeting where you get five different solutions right away about how to improve. And then everyone just like builds off of that. There's no, it's not ego driven. It's uh, solution driven. And if you can get everyone to do that, and I'm telling you, if you can get your CEO to do this, where the CEO never blames anyone, it just, it, they just say, this is my fault. And here's how we can improve. And everyone instantly goes to how we can improve rather than blaming someone because mistakes are going to happen. It's, I think it's a cool culture. Like yep. you guys. Yeah. Absolutely. That's how you go from cat five to two in a year. That's how you become, uh, take a normal racing team and become a dominant racing team. That's just how, like, the, the, we should all look at that in terms of cycling. And that's how we should look at our performances. We can always yeah. improve them. Everything you do, yeah. relationships too. Uh, totally. Like relationships with your significant other. Like if you always take a mindset of, hey, uh, I am not communicating. It's, it's my fault that I'm not communicating this well enough, right? That's a totally different thing than this person never listens right? Yep. You take totally. that mindset, it helps. Yeah. yeah. What was my part in this? How can I be better? Yeah. How can yeah. I not make the same mistake again? I mean, then that's the other thing. Making mistakes is just normal. That's, it's actually a great thing because otherwise, you know, how else do we learn? It's just a matter of what are you going to do with the learnings from that mistake and how are you going to carry that forward so you don't make the same mistake again? You're going to go and make new mistakes. Trust me, none of us are going to run out of the kinds of mistakes that we can make. <laughs> but the key that. is, yeah, just, just once you make a mistake, really, really take that lesson to heart, learn from it so that you don't make the same one again. Yep. Uh, let's do the last question here for this week is going to be Christina's question. She says, you might think this is out of your wheelhouse at first, but I think your facility with scientific literature will equip you to answer. Well, it's definitely out of the wheelhouse for Chad, Nate, and I here, I know. <laughs> but, but we have Amber. Because <laughs> she asks, how does hormonal birth control impact training and performance? I've heard that many elite and pro-female pro athletes avoid it, and I'm wondering if that is because it's detrimental to performance, related to body composition concerns, or has other adverse effects on adaptations on, on our bodies or that our bodies make during training. Um, so Amber... <laughs> <laughs> Take it away. Uh, yeah. Uh, short answer is all of the above. Um, so hormonal birth control does impact training and performance. And so I'll just, I'll restrict this, this discussion to hormonal birth control in particular. Um, and this is just the use of synthetic hormones to influence the menstrual cycle, um, to either make it more regular to, uh, for birth control purposes, um, there's a lot of different health reasons that you might want to go on to a hormonal birth control. Uh, but the point is that you use synthetic hormones to manipulate the menstrual cycle. Um, the, the problem with this discussion really is that there's not a lot of empirical research on this, which is very, very frustrating as a female athlete to want to find this kind of information to understand and feel like you're making a really informed decision about your body and what you're putting into it and how it's going to impact you, especially as an athlete and, and understanding how it's going to impact your performance. Um, there's just, there's not a lot of good research on this. Um, so with that in mind, I will say that um, I'll, just, I'll talk a little bit about some of some mechanistic things. And um, I think the bottom line with this, honestly, you talk to 10 different women on the same form of hormonal birth control and you will get 10 vastly different experiences um, in terms of both the pros and cons. So one of the things that's become really, really clear with these is how they affect your physiology is going to be very, very different than how it's going to affect other people's physiology. There are just so many different feedback mechanisms in these cycles and these hormones. Um, 
different feedback loops in the body's physiology that it's really, really hard to make generalizations and say this particular hormonal birth control method is going to have this impact on your performance. Um, it's just not that cut and dry. So with all of that said, um, I will say that, so there's the, the birth control pill is a hormonal based birth control that is usually, so the, there's a biphasic, a monophasic, a biphasic, and a triphasic. The monophasic is it's the same hormonal dosage for three out of four weeks, and then you have a week of sugar pills. The biphasic is, um, I think, a steady estrogen, and then there's an increase in progestin, um, again, synthetic hormones, and then you have a week of sugar pills. And then there's a triphasic that manipulates both the levels of estrogen and progestin over the course of three weeks. But then again, you have a week off with the sugar, or I don't know if that one has the sugar pills or not. Um, all of this is to say that you're using a lot of synthetic hormones, uh, m- mostly synthetic estrogen and progestin, and the synthetic hormones affect your body in a really, really different way than the natural hormones do. So some of those are really good. So the bottom line with this is it comes down to a cost-benefit analysis on an individual level. Um, birth control can really help alleviate some symptoms that some women have with irregular cycles, PMS symptoms, especially uh, with endometriosis is a big one. Um, So there are some really, really legitimate reasons that a hormonal birth control would be really, really beneficial to somebody. Um, Reasons other than birth control itself. Um, That said, when you're kind of flooding the system with these synthetic hormones, what can happen is you can get up to, um, I was looking at some of Stacey Sims research on this and you can get up to six to eight times the uh, six to eight times the levels of estrogen and progestin in somebody on a hormonal birth control pill relative to somebody who would just be having a natural cycle. Uh, so that's a lot. That's a huge increase in the level of these hormones. And all of these hormones have pros and cons to them. So when you're really flooding the system with them, you often get some of those, an increase in some of the side effects. Um, And the side effects without a lot of the benefits that come with the natural form of the hormones. So it's not awesome. Um, But again, if, if being on a hormonal birth control alleviates debilitating premenstrual symptoms, that might actually be really, really worth it. So it really comes down to an individual kind of cost-benefit analysis. And the other thing is, I would say, I mean, one of the things I did was I tried a lot of different kinds to figure out what worked for me because what might give you debilitating side effects on one, you know, trying another one, might, you might find a balance where um, it's solving some problems for you, but the side effects aren't quite as bad. Um, a lot of the side effects are depression and anxiety related. And so those kinds of mental health related side effects, I think do, in addition to physiological impacts, can have uh, some real impacts on performance, not only in training, but, you know, obviously, obviously in racing too. So it's a lot to consider. Um, one of the things that happens with the, the week of sugar pills, um, so you're kind of flooding the body with these synthetic hormones for three weeks and you're taking a break. Um, when you're not on hormonal birth control and you're just having a natural cycle, that's your low hormone phase. That's the lowest hormone phase of the entire cycle. And that's sort of when we see, um, 
kind of like your highest capacity to do work in terms of training and performance because you're in the lowest hormone phase. But when you're on a birth control and you're taking that week off with sugar pills, that you're not actually getting low hormone because now your body is rebounding with estrogen. And so your, your estrogen levels, your natural estrogen levels during that week are closer to what you would see in the first trimester of pregnancy than they would be during an actual period. So the, the time that you'd be having your period on a natural cycle versus on synthetic hormones, it's, it's a really, really different physiology that's happening there. Um, so I, I, again, I don't have like, there's no way to say it's a good thing or a bad thing, but absolutely it has an impact on performance. How it's going to impact your performance is going to be really, really, really individual. Um, and you just have to decide, you know, what, what's the best, what's the best configuration for you? How are the, how is, you know, why would you be using it? Uh, is it achieving those things for you? Um, are the side side effects that you're experiencing, you know, are those balancing out as cons with the pros? Um, yeah, I, I, I'm sorry. I don't have a, a really good kind of black and white answer for this one. <laughs> One one thing that I have on on a question on this Amber, or actually more I guess in the, once again these are just anecdotes, but I've spoken with professional level multi sport and and cyclist uh, athletes, and it's it's kind of all over the map. Like some of them yeah. say like yeah like I would never dream of not being on birth control because of the performance effects or the consistency it brings my training. But then mm-hmm. I've heard the opposite. Um, I, I hope that like sharing this wouldn't sway anybody's opinion in one direction or the other, but at least to provide some context, did you find, um, athletes taking birth control to be more common? I mean, since you've, you know, you've raced across the whole gamut of amateur to professional, is it a common thing for athletes that are following a training schedule to use this or? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there is an impact for sure. Um, but I don't, it's not the kind of thing that's going to make or break a career. Like it's not that big of a deal. Um, it's not, it's nothing in that kind of a range. It really, you know, so if you decide that that's the right thing for you, you don't feel like you're, um, hindering yourself in a really significant way. Um, I will say, uh, let me think. I I mean, I would say probably the vast majority of athletes that I was training and racing with did use some form of hormonal birth control for sure. Um, most of them were, also on kind of this journey of figuring out which one was going to be the right one for them because most of us were experiencing some kind of a side effect. Um, but yeah, it's, it's very common. So don't feel like, you know, it's like, Oh, if you're an athlete, you shouldn't do this. Not by any stretch. It's just, it's a very, very personal decision that you have to make. And you, the key really is just to pay attention to how it's affecting you. Um, and sometimes that's really hard to figure out. Like I finally found one where I felt like, Oh my, I mean, I, my, my side effects were all over the map. I mean, I was on one where I was crying myself to sleep every single night for three months before it dawned on me that this wasn't normal, <laughs> that maybe there was something else going on and I didn't really want to live like this. And then the second I changed to a different one, you know, I wasn't crying myself to sleep anymore. But then on the next one, I was getting uh, what they call melasma, which was like dark pigmented patches on your face. That wasn't an awesome side effect. Okay, so we went on the next one. So the next one that I was on, Actually, I, I didn't feel like I was having any, you know, any bad symptoms. Um, so I thought, okay, finally, I found the one that I would like. And I was on it for, gosh, years. And um, what ended up happening was I was on a vacation and I forgot to bring it. And so I thought, okay, well, 
I can hang for another, you know, I'll, I'll get back on it on my next cycle. And a couple of weeks into it, I was like, wow, this is really weird. I, I feel really happy. I feel <laughs> unbelievably lighthearted and optimistic about my life. <laughs> There's no real reason for me to feel like that. And it was, it, it, you know, it took a couple of weeks of this contrast in just mental and emotional outlook for me to realize that what that, that, that particular one had done was like on a very slow, gradual slope had, had slowly but surely been um, increasing my, my anxiety and some depressive symptoms in a way that I wasn't really aware of because it was such a gradual change. And then it wasn't until accidentally having to stop it that I noticed this huge, huge difference just in my emotional outlook. Um, so it, it can be a really tricky thing too, to pick apart uh, what the symptoms you know, what are symptoms, what are just normal emotional reactions to life? And that's really a frustrating thing because the emotion that you feel as a result of these synthetic hormones is very, very real. And it's kind of this mind trip because you're like, okay, this is a real emotion that I'm experiencing in real life. Um, that's not founded on anything that's real. And that's a really, it's a, it's a really bizarre experience um, and very frustrating, uh, but, but something that we grapple with. Amber, let me ask you a question. How, how hard is it to extricate the effects of the, the birth control with the effects of just training stress? So, I mean, is it, can you pin all these issues on the birth control or can do you have to, because you said you went on vacation and all these things started to work or you started to feel better in general. Could it just be that you got away from your training stress and your body was rebounding? I mean, how do you know specifically that it was the birth control and not the, the, the removal of training? Well, I was training through that vacation. So that was one thing. Um, she doesn't take vacations. <laughs> no, no, vacations. <laughs> no, no, no training vacations. Um, no, that one, that one was pretty clear to me though, honestly. And it's kind of hard to explain, but it was, it was a really fundamental shift in like total, like total frame of mind with everything. It was a, a totally different frame of mind in interpreting my communications and my relationships and how I felt about my training, how I felt about myself. I mean, it was such a fun, like just a fundamental shift that I, I really, it, there's no way that it could have been anything else. Um, that said, teasing it apart on the other way around in terms of, you know, having been able to identify that I was having increased anxiety and depressive symptoms, um, that I don't know that that even would have been possible because I also think that that was a little bit of a gradual, like a gra gradual enough increase that would have been really hard to tease apart. And the other mm -hmm. thing is it takes your body a while to adjust to all of these things. So once you start a new one, you got to give it a few months to figure out, you know, how it's going to affect your cycle, how it's going to affect your physiology. And I mean, journaling, keeping really good notes in your training diary. I mean, all of these things are really, really important. It's, and again, like it's a tricky thing. There's no, there's no rubric for this. There's no protocol that says, okay, you know, if you're on this for three months and you feel these things and this is happening, it really is so subjective and so individual. It's, it's just something you kind of, I mean, you got to dive in and, and do the work and figure it out for yourself. Uh, I have to say PSA on this. So, um, my wife, when she was 29, she had a stroke and they looked at, they did all these tests and the only risk factor was, um, birth control. Um, so uh, people should know that birth control does increase your risk of a stroke. Um, I think with Yaz, with certain birth control, she was on orthotricycline, but with mm -hmm. Yaz, they actually had a lawsuit around it. And the important thing to know about a stroke, and this is with anyone too, with older, everyone should know this. Uh, if, you, if you can get in within the two hours of when your stroke first happens, 
with, they have a drug called TPA and it can be, you can be pretty successful. Once you get out of that window, you start to like either that you don't administer the TPA or they have to do this crazy thing with my wife. Cause we were out of the, we were out of the window where they did a, um, they put this catheter in at her hip and went all the way up to her brain and released the TPA only where it was. But we were only, Reno had one of the only places in the nation um, at this time that had this kind of skill. So um, please Google signs and symptoms of a stroke. Maybe Tucker can put this in. Um, but one thing, a couple things, like if you see it's the smile, um, doing your fingers like a thumb to every finger on both hands. And if you can only do that on one hand and not the other hand, um, go and see a doctor. A very, uh, this is also usually paired with a headache. Um, blurred vision. Um, there's a whole bunch of other ones, but basically you can stick your tongue out and move it. If my wife has a headache, um, she takes aspirin every day for the rest of her life because you can't, uh, you can't prove or we can't prove that it was birth control, but she had zero other risk factors. It bubble test all these crazy things um, to her. Um, but we do the things with the fingers right away. We do smiles because uh, she was completely paralyzed uh, one side of her body. Um, pretty severe. It was like a, a 10 out of 13 for those doctors. Uh, who know, wow. but she fully recovered, which was lucky. Um, she still has a little bit of problems with her left hand, but just be a, everyone. Cause I probably, everyone has someone, you know, on birth control and everyone yeah. uh, knows someone who is an older person that if you can get in quick, it's really important. And so much so that some hospitals in your area might have a, like a stroke center or a stroke team. If you, if you do have someone that might be a risk group, I would actually research to see which is the hospital we should go to. And also um, call ahead, at least at our renown in Reno, they had a stroke team. And if they knew that a stroke team was, uh, they had like a, a rapid response stroke team and they would like assemble and get all those people together when you're in the ambulance or when you're on the way there, because minutes matter on this. Uh-huh. Um, so those are kind of things to be aware of just in general. Um, I think everyone should be aware of. Yeah. Well, and one yeah. last thing to add on this too, and, and sorry, everybody, if it's, it's, it's a bit scary uh, saying this sort of stuff too, but um, birth control, at least from all signs pointing after working with fertility specialists was the cause of like seven years of infertility for us too. So like, um, so it was really, really tough and it's caused like a lot of health ramifications for, for my wife too. So it's definitely like a very individual choice. And it's one where you have to kind of, like you said, Amber, right? Like, you have to weigh the benefits and look at what could happen, what is happening, and just stay heads up throughout the whole thing. Because yeah. even though like we're all about performance on this podcast and, and, you know, like becoming a faster cyclist, which is definitely, you know, what we drive toward at the same time, that should never come at the cost of like health, right? So, no. which is why you brought up all of those other things that like there's sure like you were riding and your riding was, was itself over here, but it's not worth any other costs. So, right, right. And this is, you know, so take on messages, talk to your doctor about all of your options and understand that you do have options and, and whatever options that you're seriously considering, have a really frank conversation with your doctor about what you do, your training level, what your concerns are, um, ask about the side effects, ask about the things that you need to be looking out for. Um, be really, really communicative with your doctor about how you are feeling, any side effects you are experiencing so that you can work together to find a good solution for you. I mean, I do know women who have cycles that are just all over the map and birth control is a godsend for them because otherwise they wouldn't be able to train with regularity. Um, Women who manage pain from endometriosis. I mean, there's a lot of really, really good, profoundly impactful reasons to use birth control, um, but they are not what it's, there's no free lunch. I mean, bone density is a huge concern. Fertility is a huge concern. Stroke is, I'm so glad you brought that up, Nate. That's a big one. Um, and we know that, you know, uh, in some cases athletes are 
can be prone to like DVT and things like that. So we really, really, yeah, this is, this is a really big, um, personal health issue as much as, as it is a performance issue. But, um, yeah, there's, Mm -hmm. there's no free lunch on this one. (laughs) It's going to affect you one way or the other. It's just a matter of how it affects you as an individual and, um, and, and how that kind of weighs out in a balance. I'm glad you're here to talk about it, Amber. I mean, clearly the three of us can't talk about it, but then also it's just, it's not very commonly discussed too. So. No, um, and it's a shame that there isn't more research around it too. It would be, be really great to have a better mechanistic understanding of how these things work. It is a, it is complicated. It's really complicated, but Yeah. yeah, it is good to talk about. Well, thanks for joining us, everybody. Um, and this is, uh, this is exciting that we're going to have Amber with us now uh, on these remote podcasts. And Forever. <laughs> I mean, this is the new normal. So yep. um, we'll see how long this goes, but we're excited to keep doing it. Hopefully we can get it live. But once again, tune in via YouTube so you can see it there. Uh, if not, then you can get it through the podcast. Once again, if the audio quality, like, you know, this is our first crack at going through with this whole setup. So the audio quality, video quality isn't quite there. Please forgive us. Uh, well, we are committed to constant improvement, so we'll get better every week. Two things. I hope this recorded. Me too. <laughs> <'Cause>, you know, <laughs> uh, if not, if not uh, take another crack at it. Restart no, now. <laughs> Second, in the forum and uh, on YouTube, please say if you like this, because when it does go back to normal, like if you like this setup, I think we nailed it everyone just y'all but like say if you like this because if we do like i would love to have amber on forever and uh we could talk about periods all the time it's gonna be amazing (laughs) i can't wait uh no i I mean no we no one talks about it we should it's like yeah i think it's a competitive advantage for our podcast Uh, for sure like literally uh so anyways yeah give us feedback on this um and chad i think you're just backlit we should fix that me too I want to see your to bring in some light for me. Yeah, it's going to have to be a different room. We're done. Are we done with the podcast? No, no, we can do. Uh, we can do lights. I got. I'm front lit right now. No, this is all part of the podcast. What do I well, do we with can, my hands? Constant improvement. We can. We can keep like tweaking our setup. Uh, for sure. which will be awesome. So yeah, cool. Let us so know. They, yeah, absolutely. Let us know down below if you're watching. Please give us a thumbs up. That helps the video a ton. Check out Trainer Road and stay tuned. And we will talk to you all next week. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Stay safe, Thanks, guys.